You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 426. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. Your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 20th of May, 2020. Today's episode, Singapore imprisons a U.S. cargo pilot for breaking quarantine laws. An F-22 crashes near Eglin Air Force Base. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, the Ian Palmer interviews part two. So get all settled in, tray tables and seatbacks in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 426 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 10-10 wins in New York City. And you are listening, watching the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. And joining me are my awesome co-hosts. From his mobile studio in Cincinnati, Ohio, world traveler, airplane mechanic, Breitling Cognoscenti fitness hound, and international air freight captain, it's Miami Rick. Hello, everybody. How's everybody doing? Happy to be back. Looking forward to another great show. We are looking forward to it as well. And from the UK, it's a new uh, it's a new intro music for uh, Captain Nick. What do you think? <laughs> nah, just it's not very musical. <laughs> All right, from his uh, studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much indeed for that, Jeff. Anything I thought I was going to say for an intro, and that got completely out of my head. <laughs> but I could give you a live performance. Good. Podcaster. Podcaster. Awesome. And also joining us from the Northwest Atlanta suburbs, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pleasure boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy airline, Captain Dana. What's happening, everybody? Great to be back in another fine episode that we're going to produce today. Well, we missed you as well last week when you were out there just slaving away on the lake in your power yacht. Yes, but I had a legitimate excuse. It was our 21st wedding anniversary. So, Oh, very good. Well, I hope you all had a great 21st anniversary. All by yourselves. I'm sure you weren't around anybody else, right? Yeah, we were social distancing. All right, everybody. Great to see you all. And uh, Steph should be joining us in a little while. She is uh, still at work, but uh, she should be home soon. So we look forward to hearing from her as well. But in the meantime, why don't we go ahead and just go over to the news? Stand by for news. 
All right. The first item in our news notebook is Latvian Latvian drone fueled for days goes missing, restricting airspace. Uh, Latvian authorities are hunting a 26 kilogram or 57 pound drone. That's not very heavy, is it? That went missing mid-flight, causing air traffic problems. The Aviation Authority has restricted flights below 19,500 feet, 6,000 meters if you prefer, in the region while they search for it. While officials say it is likely the drone, which took off on Saturday, has landed, it had enough fuel to fly until 1910 local time on Tuesday. Not sure when they issued this particular story, but uh, many members of the public reported sightings, but none has been confirmed. A wayward drone just on... Oh, I should have played the drone sound, right? I probably won't be able to find it, so never mind. Um, yeah, can't find this it. This looks like a pretty conventional remote-controlled aircraft, uh, as opposed to a lawnmower. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It looks like a... like a. Is it a military drone, did they say? Or they haven't really said, have they? No, but normally if it's a military drone which disappears, no one says anything because they'd rather not admit to it. True. Right. Plausible deniability. Now, there's a yeah. there's a photo in this that we're looking at in our show notes, and I'm I'm assuming that it is the the drone that has the. Okay, I found it in the uh, in the story. The non-military drone is uh, understood uh, to belong to a local unmanned aerial vehicle manufacturer, uh, which doesn't uh, bode well for. <laughs> His potential customer base, does it? No. I've got this great drone, <laughs> drone folks. Uh, oh, I'd love to share it to you, but it's gone missing. <laughs> its endurance is, so, endurance is so great that we were not going to see it for a couple of weeks. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, let's see. It's yeah. three and a half meters long and 5.5 meters wide with an airspeed of up to 43 miles per hour. It was last seen flying at about 200 meters. I guess that's the altitude it was flying at. Is mm -hmm. that right? Yeah, that could be right. Anyway, yeah. So hopefully they'll be able to find it. So I, th I thought those were those were uh, uh, GPS located, and you're able to kind of always figure out where the heck they were. I, how, do, yeah. how do you lose a drone? <laughs> this is a low cost model. No GPS on this thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think that that's yeah. the way they operate. Yeah, you're right. I think the little wire that connected it to the controller snapped. <laughs> Uh, actually, considering the number of these devices, which they <laughs> yeah, I used to, Jeff's pretending to be a control line uh, model pilot, and I used to do that when I was a kid as well. Um, we're, we're chucking an awful lot of these uh, bits of kit up into the uh, atmosphere, actually, and um, some of them are enormous, aren't they? They've got mm. these uh, ultra lightweight and uh, 100 meter wingspan. Uh, made of incredibly light material uh, remote aircraft that are drifting around in the uh, stratosphere uh, doing, you know, radio communications and stuff. And, uh, you know, if one of those goes a bit haywire, I guess they're pretty frangible. Most well, I tell you, I mean, many, many times flying out of uh, in and out of uh, bases around the world, not going to say where, but around the world, there's uh, uh, you often you know, share the airport and the runways we, with these uh, these drones some of them are big as big as dc9s you know they're they're just wow. amazing and, and whoa yeah, you know, very very expensive indeed and they just go up and stay you know stay aloft for, for for days and i remember one time coming in um we landed 
taxied off the runway and uh i remember the um i know we we landed after the drone that's what it was so this drone landed because i remember the controller the military controller was telling us to to what 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 our um our approach speed the lowest approach speed we could uh, we could fly at was and obviously this is a fully loaded 747 so we got you know flaps 30 which is the most you can have and um about 150 knots over the ground and this thing is approaching at i don't know you know 80 90 knots so we're we're still quite a ways away from him, but still, you know, gaining fast on him. So he told us, you know, what's the what's the slowest we can fly? The guy, the the drone lands, and then we land it. And then uh, as we taxied off the runway, we taxied off to the to the left side. That the drone taxied off to the right, and they purposely kept us away from the drone. They didn't want us to get too close to it, or actually, or, or see it too close. I don't know what the heck it was. But it's really interesting how they handle that, that, that kind of stuff. And they probably didn't want your jet blast to like completely destroy the thing. Well, yeah, that too. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those, those that, that and the pictures on, uh, on Facebook. Yeah. 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 I, they're fascinating. I, I, I think it's incredible. Uh, these things are becoming so sophisticated and capable uh, and they're flying, you know, more and more, uh, a lot of missions we will never hear about. The civilian ones we occasionally hear about. In fact, during uh, the crisis here, uh, COVID crisis, uh, they have been flying uh, drones which were initially experimental but put them in uh, full use, transporting um, specimens and test results and things from the mainland uh, into the uh, Isle of Wight, I believe. So, you know, a, a company there was setting up an experiment and the CIA said, no, you can go f- you can go for it now because, uh, you know, you're fulfilling a real need. So it's great to see those things coming online. That's right. Yeah, put us, they're going to put us out of work, though, you know, if, uh, if a drone starts flying freight, not going to be good. Well, they, they might put Uber out of, uh, or the white van man out of business. I don't suppose they could have replaced 747s any time soon. No, uh, time soon yeah, well, you know what? As long as it happens three and a half years from now or more, who cares? I don't care. Mm. <laughs> yeah, good me. point. <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. That's me. That's just plain I'm mean. I'm just kidding. I, I feel for you. I really do. No, you don't. Yeah, I do. All right. That's enough of that one. Actually, that was a lot more than I, w- I thought we were going to say about that. Uh, the second item, item B in our news. I always said folder, but I, I, I guess they're really called notebooks here on Evernote. Um, American FedEx pilot imprisoned for breaking quarantine order in Singapore. And this is from The Guardian. Uh-oh. The, you know these freight dogs? They don't follow rules at all. Rules don't apply to us. I know. You yeah. laugh at the rule book. They cut into the traffic pattern. They uh, never stick to their speeds. They're always making you yeah. go around. Dreadful lot. Well, speaking of poor judgment, Rick, uh, an American cargo <laughs> yeah. pilot who admitted to poor judgment in breaking a quarantine order to buy medical supplies has become the first foreigner imprisoned in Singapore for breaching. His first foreigner imprisoned in Singapore. Yay. He's a first for breaching its restrictions meant to curb the coronavirus. FedEx pilot Brian Dugan Jurgen, 44 years old from Eagle River in Alaska, was sentenced to four weeks on Wednesday after he pleaded guilty to leaving his hotel room for three hours to buy masks and a thermometer. Singapore has one of the largest outbreaks in Asia with 26,000 cases. More than 90% of the uh, those infected are foreign workers living in crowded dormitories, while the government recently began easing restrictions for the local population. The tiny city-state has strict penalties for those who breach quarantine rules. 
don't wear masks in public, or fail to adhere to social distancing measures. Quarantine violators face up to six months in jail, a fine of up to ten thousand Singapore dollars, which is about seven thousand U.S. or both. So, yeah, he. Uh, yeah, Singapore. You don't want it. Well, it's, it's one of the. It's a beautiful place. I love Singapore. I'm sure you've been there, Nick, as well. Um, but they're. Oh yeah, uh, they're very too. nice. Very, very particular with their uh, with their local laws. Even even chewing gum down there is something you're not allowed to do. Mm-hmm. So, uh, oh yeah, yeah. So you have to be yeah, just kind of when you go to someone's house, you just kind of you know abide by the rules and stay out of trouble. And that's exactly it is a problem right. when so, you know someone like you, Rick, who has to visit so many countries, run one after the other. Um, you kind of lose track of where you are, and it's actually quite easy to blunder around and, and break a local bylaw and you hope generally speking that you just put your hands up and go oh, i'm sorry i'm i'm jet lagged i'm a pilot i had forgotten where i was and apologize but yeah. sadly it didn't, seems that didn't you didn't get away with it yeah so so we have we have um among our our reading material um we have what are called station guides and so uh these these are guides that 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 basically have you know the local customs uh what to expect what to do what not to do contact information hotel information that, that kind of stuff so it's a good idea to i'm i'm, I'm pretty sure you know i'm sure airlines other airlines international airlines do the same it's a good idea to kind of review those and you know see what your what's in store for you if you uh, if you don't walk uh, down the, the yellow brick road there. So it's just a good idea. Just kind of just know what you're walking into and don't yep. stray, don't stray off. Yep. All right. Well, hopefully he'll have learned his lesson and uh, had fun um, in jail. No, I don't. Yeah, think he'll, he'll have he'll, he'll have stories about that one time he was in the can. So it's a. <laughs> All right. Um, item C. Whoa. Those darn drones again. Drone hits, nearly hits Blue Angels during flyover on the uh, 15th of May, not too long ago. Um, let's see. A recent America strong flyover by the U.S. Navy Blue Angels in Detroit, Michigan on Tuesday, May 12th. Okay could have ended in a mid-air collision when a remotely piloted camera drone flew dangerously close to the six FA-18 Hornets as they flew over buildings in the city's downtown area. And this is from, well, I don't know. <laughs> I forgot to put where that was from. Um, hang on. I don't know. Uh, looks like... Um, downtown Detroit? No, I mean, I'm talking about the article that I'm reading. Oh, okay. oh, it's Aviationist. There we go. Ah. The video began to surface on social media Wednesday, May 12th, the day after the Blue Angels America strong flyover in Detroit. So I guess it was the 11th that they did the flyover. The original video posted to YouTube included a number of different angles with the camera drone appearing momentarily in some of the shots. The final shot shows the Blue Angel 6 aircraft wedge formation flying extremely close to the camera drone as they pass overhead at speed. The left wing, likely the number five aircraft in the formation, is very close to the camera drone in the shot. Most aerial drones are equipped with wide-angle lenses, making the proximity of the the drone to the Blue Angel formation seen in the video extremely close. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration has established specific rules for safe camera drone operation. One requirement uh, says, Do not operate your drone in a careless or reckless manner. 
Drone activities for commercial use, such as real estate survey and listing work, require a license from the FAA. Operators must pass the FAA test and obtain a Part 107 drone operations certification. Basic drone operation rules also include not operating a drone near other aircraft. Mm, I guess we uh, do that. Uh, What else? It requires that not only operating close or near other aircraft, but uh, not above 400 feet. Uh, Guess what? The Blue Angels um, formation, they were not below 400 feet. So obviously the drone was much higher than that. And uh, anyway, uh, the, I don't know if you all uh, have uh, subscribed to or listened to uh, C.W. Lemoyne. He is a, um, both a Navy and Air Force uh, fighter pilot. And uh, he does a, he has a YouTube channel uh, that he does uh, shows every week or sometimes a couple of times a week. And I think he, he's a 7.3 driver for American too. There you go. He's also an airline pilot. Um, I'll put a link to his video where he talks about this uh, dangerous drone um, encounter with the uh, Blue Angel flyover. So you can kind of hear his analysis. Now, some people were thinking that maybe it was just a fake video, but um, most people, I think, are are uh, surmising that the thing is actually a real situation. So, you know, the, the drone's not only flying too close to airplanes, but it's also flying over a populated area, which is not supposed to do, and it's flying above 400 feet. So at least three of the Part 107 rules are being violated here. Right, because you're not supposed to fly below 500 feet on aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, 400 feet for a drone, that gives you 100 feet separation. And, you know, clearly if, if he got close, as close as he did to the uh, to the jet, then he was must have been above 400, which yeah. is just too possible. Come on. Oh, man. and I'm pretty certain that any time the, uh, the Angels or any of the other formation teams uh, does a, a show, even if it's just a fly plus like this, they will uh, have put out no terms closing the airspace to anything, mm-hmm. including drones. So you sure. can T- give that T- buzzer another press. <clears throat> T- uh, it'd be a TFR too, mm-hmm. temporary flight restrictions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sounds like they've got a name for this guy. I'm only hoping they can find him because he seems to have done this sort of thing before. So uh, I hope they give him a pretty good rap on the knuckles. Or something else. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I I suspect the Blues would have coped with it, the Angels would have coped with it very well had it come in amongst the formation because – course they do a lot of displays uh, near beaches there are going to be birds around there and i'm sure a few of them have had a bird pass through the formation or even hit people in the formation so i suspect they're quite capable of uh, dealing with it but it's just an unnecessary risk you want to try and avoid mm. well i think yeah. a drone would have a lot more mass well not necessarily mass but not be as soft as a bird would be now yeah. how, how how sturdy are those canopies nick on the 18 uh, they're actually quite flexible. Uh, it is possible. I, I, I'm trying to think if whether the guy was killed or not. There was a case of a bird uh, hitting a canopy. Uh, the canopy flexed in, mm. uh, struck the pilot uh, with a force enough to uh, damage his neck or knock him unconscious. The aircraft crashed, and when they they tried to work out why uh, he had been killed. And it turned out that they found uh, evidence of a bird strike on top of the canopy and surmised that this is what had happened. Uh, so they're they're very strong, but they're flexible. Um, so they're pretty clever yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. I remember in the uh, going into uh, now, now that we're kind of kind of 
pivoting here from drones to bird strikes. I remember flying into uh, JFK one evening. I think I've told the story before. We were radar vectors to, to join the ILS to whatever runway it was. And uh, just on that basis, we, as we began rolling out, it was it was like a, like an oversized bug hit our windshield. And it was this mm. bird, and it was it it uh, it hit the it hit the captain's side, so he couldn't see out the window anymore. So he transferred controls. I landed. And then that sparked a question in my mind. I'm going, you know, how how much how much abuse can these can these uh, uh, windshields take? And I started digging into the books, and I couldn't find a figure for the the speed at which these, at, at least in the seven six, the, the windshields are rated. And I finally, a little obscure chapter, a little passage there on the on the uh, on the AMM, the the maintenance manual, I found a speed of 307 knots indicated at standard atmosphere. That is what the windshields are rated at. So ever since then, um, either on climb or descent, I uh, I always limit my climb speed to 300 knots, transition to Mach, and then on the descent, Mach transition to 300 knots, and that'll keep you uh, should keep you uh, safe should uh, you ever mm. encounter a bird. At I, I guess it depends whether the chicken that hits your windscreen is uh, it, you know soft or frozen. Yeah, I, I, I heard about the study. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> They Frozen couldn't figure chicken. out what the heck was going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I I think they're calibrated against a sort of mid-sized bird, but if you were to hit a uh, an albatross or a, uh, um, you know, one of those big hooper swans that can fly up to 25,000 oh, feet. I thought you were talking about Jimmy Buffett and his albatross. <laughs> <laughs> that, that'd be, that'd be um, but no, yeah. there are some pretty big birds out there. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, a pelican would uh, really spoil your day, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would ruin your day. And... The worst is the uh, rubber chickens. They're really bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Those are bad. <laughs> All right. Uh, Dana's got one, actually. I'm surprised he doesn't have it to hand. Nah. Throwing it at the did. camera. See how the camera takes it. Yeah. It's back in the drawer of his bedside cabinet. Is that where you leave that one alone? We're not going to go there. Uh-uh. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Um, Item D, F-22 crashes near Eglin Air Force Base. Pilot ejected safely. Again, this is from the aviationist. Uh, an F-22 assigned to the 43rd Fighter Squadron, part of the five, 325th Fighter Wing, based at Eglin Air Force Base in uh, near Fort Walton Beach, uh, Florida, crashed at approximately 9.15 local time on May 15th. The location of the accident was 12 miles northeast of Eglin uh, Air Force Base main base on the test and training range. Uh, this, uh, from the statement says the pilot ejected safely from the aircraft and has been transported to the 96th medical group hospital on Eglin for evaluation and observation. He is currently in stable condition. The name of the pilot has not been released. Uh, according to first reports, the aircraft was involved in a, uh, in an American strong flyover. However, the official statement released by Eglin air force base just says that the Raptor was flying a training mission. Um, and it was not actually that flyover that day was canceled. Um, come to learn, uh, safety and safety investigators are continuing to evaluate the wreckage of the F 22 Raptor that crashed Friday morning. And, uh, they added a little bit of information. I just picked up this, uh, today. Um, they said that it was indeed a training mission. There were no, um, armaments or munitions. In other words, you know, missiles and bombs and stuff like that on the uh, jet when it crashed. And that's about all 
we know. We're not sure exactly what caused the aircraft to crash. Mm. So we'll kind of keep our eyes and ears yeah. Well, the pilot's good, but uh, that's an expensive jet. Very expensive jet. Very expensive. Well, you know what? And um, I didn't put it in the news today, but I think it was this morning or yesterday, um, an F-35 crashed uh, out of Eglin Air Force Base as really? well. Yeah. And um, let's see. Maybe I can just quickly. Have they just got too many of these things or what? Uh, no. <laughs> Main man Micah says that uh, the pilot bailed out successfully in the F-35 and the F-22 as well. So I think uh, some broken bones with the F-22 pilot, but um, everybody survived both of these crashes, just that the airplanes didn't. All right. And then speaking of airplane crashes and kind of staying in that whole military aviation uh, theme, uh, the last item in the news, um, a Canadian Forces... Snowbirds, actually, the Canadian Forces Snowbirds jet crashes in Kamloops, British Columbia, killing one and injuring the other. Victim identified as Captain Jen Casey, a public affairs officer with the Snowbirds. A witness captured the moments before a Canadian Forces Snowbirds jet crashed in Kamloops. The Canadian uh, Forces Snowbirds cross-country tour to raise people's spirits during the COVID-19 pandemic turned to tragedy Sunday when one of its planes plunged into the ground in Kamloops, British Columbia, killing one member and injuring the other. Uh, The Snowbirds jet crashed shortly after takeoff and burst into flames in the front yard of a house. I don't know if you were all able to see the uh, the video. Uh, yeah. It looked like it was a two ship. I think it was like a yeah. uh, the the two um, jets that go ahead of the of the main uh, demonstration team to kind of set things up a couple hours before uh, they were taking off together. And I believe it was the wingman all of a sudden, shortly after takeoff, just immediately pulls up pretty abruptly and then kind of does a maneuver, a wing over maneuver. And then uh, when the airplane was um, upright. Uh, the uh, ignition was initiated, uh, ejection was initiated, and uh, one survived and one didn't. And uh, Jen, uh, Jen Casey was the one that perished. Um, mm. The pilot of the CT-114 Tudor aircraft, Captain Richard McDougall, sustained serious injuries in the crash, but they are not considered life-threatening. Um, Jen Casey, a public affairs officer, died in the crash happened before noon Pacific time, shortly after the jet took off. We just talked about that. And video shows two puffs of black smoke coming from the plane. It appears to show at least one person ejecting. No, it showed two. Um, there is uh, some other video that was closer and almost right underneath the departure path of the aircraft. And uh, they say, I have not heard it uh, or watched it, but they say that there was a kind of a sound like a pop. Uh, so it kind of indicates there's a single engine trainer that they've uh, configured for this demonstration team. And they're thinking that there was some kind of uh, either uh, engine uh, reduction in thrust or perhaps just an engine failure. And uh, how, how close is that to the T-37 you flew? Um, T-37 was a twin jet. Okay. Um, but oh, it, single engine. Yeah, this one's single engine. But I bet that it probably still had more thrust than the T-37 does. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, the the two uh, jets in the uh, T-37 are non-afterburning. They're centrifugal flow compressor 
mm-hmm. engines. We called it an ice machine. It, you know, it was funny because we'd go out there and uh, fly some sorties, and if anybody said anything about icing, the T-38s would be immediately grounded because they're very sensitive to icing. And the uh, T-37s would be out there all day long just uh, making ice cubes. So um, <laughs> that's you know, the bad thing about the centrifugal flow compressor jets are that they don't produce a lot of power. But the good thing is they're really, really hardy engines. So oh, they are. See, the, the thing with that is, is that you can only. I think the maximum the maximum number of compressor stages you can have is in a centrifugal flow compressor tap engine is two. Because mm-hmm. any any higher than that, the compression ratio just goes down the tubes. Yeah, and you start actually losing power the more uh, stages you, you, you try to put in there. So yeah, they just limit them to two. It's very um, it, the uh, jets look very similar the way they're designed with a pretty straight wing and uh, mm-hmm. uh, side by side not um, not front and back kind of uh, seating um, for primary training and that works out better I think uh, to be you know right next to the person that you're training with instead of like one one in front of the yeah. other tandem right yeah yeah the look of the jet is very similar to the uh, Jet Provost Mark V that. I used when I was training. Yeah. Uh, the intakes, the the layout, the cockpit, the mm-hmm. canopy, the whole nine yards. Um, and I don't think it's a new airplane by any means. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's a great shame. Uh, and this accident really reflects something that happened to the Red Arrows uh, not that long ago when they had an engine, uh, I think it was an engine problem or perhaps a practice engine uh, failure. Either way, um, the pilot lost control, and uh, sadly, the passenger, uh, which is what the uh, poor lady in this accident would have been, their public affairs officer, was killed. Um, and, you know, we get incredibly well trained as, as, as air crew in uh, the escape systems and what to do and although i've absolutely no doubt she was given training it won't have been as quite as intensive uh, as uh, someone who does it all day every day i was going to say it was made by bombardier but i would have been wrong if i had said that it's actually made I'm, by Canadair. i'm glad i interrupted you then yeah me too so i had a little chance to actually look that up on wikipedia <laughs> I was just seeing when the thing was uh, made. Its first flight was 13 January 1960. Oh, wow. And retired as a trainer in the year 2000. So I guess they're just keeping these around for the uh, demonstration team. Yeah. All right. Very good. Um, Yeah. So uh, our um, thoughts and prayers go to Miss Jen Casey and her family and friends and et cetera. Um, And hopefully we'll find out what. What went wrong in this particular incident? And with that, guess what? It's time for the getting to know you segment. Getting to like you. All right. How are we doing? Is uh, Steph uh, getting close to being arriving home yet? Do we know? I haven't been paying attention. Well, she's left, but I okay. She, I don't know how long the journey is. I'm guessing Still. without too much traffic. On her way, but not too close yet. Okay. Well, we'll just do a special getting to know you segment for Steph when she arrives, because we all want to know what's going on with her. Um, but what we can say, she says, 15 minutes. Yay. Okay, Steph, keep your hands on the wheel. Um, oh, it's raining in uh, the Charlotte area as well. Okay, be safe. 
Yeah. Um, so, uh, Rick, because yeah. we did not, well, both you and Dana, we did not see either of you last show. And so I'm sure you have some stuff to tell us about, to get, get us all caught up. What's it been up? Well, I, uh, just basically on days off, um, really. And uh, the morning of the show at 3 a.m. local time, Phoenix, I got a call from scheduling saying um, uh, if I was interested in picking up a flight, uh, just a morning stay, you know, morning's worth of flying um, up to uh, Portland um, for a pretty good amount of coin. And I was like, well, you know, that's uh, doing some work at home and remodeling a bunch of stuff so i figured yep well we'll we'll do it so i did that you know went up to went up to portland for the day uh commercial back down was back home by uh, i don't know 1 30 or 2 p.m and then went on down to the cactus farm to keep buying cacti (laughs) because we're uh we're uh, redoing the front of the house there so uh just basically been working on the house uh headed out to work uh yesterday so uh, i'm on the road now till uh, the end of the month uh have the first uh first couple of days in reserves in reserve here in Cincinnati. And then I have uh, a couple of flights to uh, down to Tampa up to BWI, then across to uh, Portland again. So uh, that should, uh, that should tie a nice bow on it. Very good. Very good. Oh, by the way, uh, just to keep us above the 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Micah said it was the uh, F-35 crashed in England, but it actually Eglin air force base. So maybe that's the confusion there. Eglin, England, they look kind of the same, yeah. but, um, apparently, yeah. uh, from the chat room, uh, Carl Columbus, Mississippi said the F 35 fighter jet crashed at Eglin, Eglin air force base. So just want to make sure that we keep, uh, keep it on track and above 50% here. Very nice. Two right. in four days, two crashes in four days. Yeah. Yeah. Very, so. not very good. Um, so, uh, very good. So the, you, you headed up to Portland, uh, Maine or Portland, Oregon, uh, Oregon, Oregon. Oh, Oregon. Okay. Yeah. Portland, Oregon. I was going to say, if you went up to Portland, Maine, you could have given uh, Micah a call gotten together. Well, actually you would have had to stay away. So never mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's, uh, I tell you, it's interesting because it's, um, so you fly into Portland and, uh, the first time I went to Portland, actually the first time I flew into Portland was during my, my, uh, my OE here on the seven, six, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And I knew that uh, they do a lot of the a lot of the uh, the painting for Boeing jets down in Portland, but I, I I had no idea it was such a big operation. And it was kind of interesting to see Portland is not particularly a, a a huge airport, but it's interesting seeing these these different you know tales from airliners from around the world. I, I saw a, uh, a couple of uh, LL seven eight sevens and uh, a uh, seven eight seven from uh, the uh, Ukrainian airline. I forget the name of the airline. I think it's Ukrainian. And I thought it's interesting to see you now seeing these airliners parked there thinking, well, they don't fly out here. And then I thought then, then it clicked. I was like, Oh, they, they paint them down here. And uh-huh. then they fly them up the river to, uh, to, uh, to Everett. So uh, interesting, interesting little place. And as you're coming in, the arrival procedure takes you, well, uh, the, the, the first time I flew in there, I flew in from BWI. As you're coming in, you fly right next to Mount hood. Yeah, it's beautiful. And the point there, yeah, the point there's called hood. And, uh, as you begin coming down and you go up the river, uh, your base to final turn uh, when you're landing to the uh, east takes you right over a little airport that I, uh, you know, a little tiny runway there with a lot of uh, GA traffic. So I, I thought, you know, that's that's going to be interesting. I'm going to be keeping an eye out for this because uh, I can uh, I can I can see a little bit of conflict happening there every once in a while. So, um, but yeah, very lovely place. I loved it. 
You know, it seems like every time I fly into Portland, Oregon, usually from Seattle, mm-hmm. there's always some kind of kind of an abnormal situation, right, Dana? <laughs> the, yeah, all the time. We, the, we do it quite. We do it quite regularly. That's one in, of those in a virtual world. Yeah, and the, that's one of the profiles in the simulator to to do some kind of a you know the line training. Uh, oh, thing. you guys train in Portland? Ah, oh, very nice. Yeah, well, the I mean, we've, that we'd never operate. Yeah, we mm-hmm. well, yeah, not in not in the eighty eight and ninety, but uh, back in the day, flew the seven two all the time between those two airports, but. Anyway, so when you when you talked about uh, Portland, I'm thinking, yeah, I don't like that place because there's always something going wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Some type of vent that's going to pop out and you're going to be. Mm. <laughs> or if it's a loft, no, nothing, nothing yeah. may happen. So you never know. Yeah, it might be something nice and easy and simple. Yeah. And you go, really? That's it? Okay. That's it. All right. Sign off. Actually, I was out there uh, just, uh, what was it, earlier this year for my uh, uh, cousin's wife's uh, memorial. And... Uh, Got a really uh, got to ride the jump seat on what was what the what was the airplane I was on I think it was a seven six, uh, flying just past Mount Hood. It was, mm. brought back a lot of memories. It used to be used to fly up and down the West Coast. I had all those mountain peaks memorized, you know, all the way down. So been a, been a while since I've done that. Yeah, it was beautiful that morning. We saw Hood. We saw uh, St. Helens. I think it is. Mm-hmm. Not St. Helens. And right next to it, uh, Rainier, and the distance is just yeah, absolutely gorgeous. Nice gorgeous. clear day. All right, Captain Nick, how have you been, sir? Pretty good, thank you very much indeed. Um, yeah. Podcaster. I'm gonna forever regret doing that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he, I think so. He sent that in our private uh, iMessaging group, and I thought, ooh, hmm, I yes, might be able to do something with that private messaging group. <laughs> oh well, <laughs> not so much anymore. Nick. Semi-private, semi-private. Goodness, <laughs> you get a Grammy for that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, actually, I've been on social media uh, a great deal, and and mainly to uh, answer the many. Well, there have actually been hundreds of messages of sympathy uh, from our listeners and from friends and and family, of course. But, you know, I I do my best to answer every single one after uh, my uh, father's death. Uh, So, I, you know, for those who I haven't had a chance to get to your message uh, or to acknowledge it personally, and I have tried to get to everyone, but, you know, sometimes it's so hard on the social media because, you know, messages get scrolled out of view and you you miss a few. So I just wanted to thank everybody. Um, So many people said that uh, they were very grateful that Pop had, um, you know, given us those interviews, and I too will treasure those. So thank you very much indeed for that. And just for your uh, your warm wishes and uh, your hope that uh, we'll you know uh, cope with his passing uh, easily, and I'm sure we will. It's, but I just think it, I'm very touched. So thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, and on that theme, um, I had a visit today from another captain. Now we're allowed to meet in open air spaces. Uh, so long as we maintain social distancing nowadays, so you can, uh, and and, if, and you're also allowed to have one other person in your vicinity. So there's my uh, nominated uh, one other person, and there's Captain Nige there in my garden uh, in his socks um, because he'd just peeled off all his motorcycling gear, which you can see uh, piled up behind him, uh, and he'd ridden his Harley. I'm sure Dana would approve. 
um, absolutely for a, a few hours down from where he lived uh, to bring some beer, and uh, he even bought his own sandwiches. So <laughs> we uh, we uh, we made our sandwiches. He made he bought his and had a beer together and had a nice old chat while I mowed the lawn uh, because there's my lawn mower. Yeah, there. like you're really. You're mowing the lawn. That's yeah, the way I, 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 always, I don't. I don't think you're mowing the lawn. <laughs> it, 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 it kind of resembles a a a, a, a drone lawnmower. Mm-hmm. You know, like, those, like those those Roombas, I think they're called. Yeah. You know the uh, the, yeah, uh, the this the, one's uh, a German one. Uh, Jawohl. Uh, so um, it's <laughs> made by Verks. Uh, so assuming it's German, it sounds very German. Uh, and uh, yeah, I got the phone app out and I pressed go. So I'm fully responsible for mowing the lawn. <laughs> okay. Now it was lovely to see Nigel, uh, and uh, I'm, I wonder. I don't know if he's made it home yet. I hope he's home safe. He's uh, a biker. Um, has been a biker for many years. Um, longer than me for sure. So, uh, yeah, he, he's pretty good on, on the old machine. So it was great to see him. Uh, nothing else much has happened, really. You know, life is just quite normal. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm riding plain tales, but I'm, I'm, you know, I seem to have a lot in the bank now. So that's great. Keep on going. Yep. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Very good. Dana, so uh, you mentioned uh, right at the beginning that uh, you were – Absent because of a very important occasion uh, last last weekend. Yeah, uh, we got to celebrate our twenty first wedding anniversary, and in fact, we've been together this coming March. So about another what another seven months, eight months from now, no, nine months from now, um, we will have been together thirty years, Julie and I. So we uh, invited some friends out in the boat and took them out and we uh, at sunset uh, I decided to get up and say a little piece uh, about how special my lovely bride is and how proud I am and happy I am and I do it all over again and then proceeded to play our wedding song and we danced as the sun went down Um, and it was really it was really something special and I actually which I never do by the way I never do this because I believe most women out there are going to hate me but that's all right. I don't ever buy flowers but this year I did. I bought, I happened to be in Costco and saw this beautiful bunch of uh, different color roses, 24 of them, and I bought them. And they actually turned out to be spectacularly beautiful. Um, the, the bulbs, you know, the, the, the petals opened up to beautiful, I mean, big, big roses. So uh, I'm actually kind of proud of that. <laughs> Other than that, um, really, there's nothing uh good in my aviation world i haven't flown in forever um and of course uh my future is very much in the air as a matter of fact depending on when we record the next show and or um how fast how fast they do the processing uh, i will find out my fate uh sometime next week i think if not by the early the following week uh, as to where i will be going but i spent uh Better part of two hours yesterday redoing my uh, displacement choices. And uh, it took me, I have 39, 40 displacement choices because I just don't know what's going to end up happening and how it's going to work out and pan out. So I basically kind of did it as uh, if I can by chance say as captain, I would do it in Atlanta. 
not likely going to happen. Um, and then I did it based on seniority. So everybody knows how much I dislike the 737, but I actually may not have much of a choice if I prefer not to fly international. Um, and even then, I may not even have a choice. So <clears throat> I kind of did it based on seniority. So I'll, it's kind of a roll of the dice. I would uh, prefer not to do the 71 because I'm kind of burnt out on the regional stuff. I've been flying that my entire career. Uh, so the 717 to go back as a first officer would be the largest amount of pay cut that I could take at the airline. Uh, so I just don't want to do that. So I'm going to try to preserve some type of financial um, financial stability by uh, choosing the right seat on a larger piece of equipment, including maybe even the 7576. Just depends on where my, my seniority falls when they get to me. So uh, I, I spent a lot of time. And, of course, just <laughs> as I was about to hit submit and I'm reviewing everything, what does the program do? Time's out. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love it. So I had to go back through. I wrote my list the first time, so then I went back through and redid everything, kept on adjusting things, and and actually, in my haste, discovered I actually printed everything out so I could look it over. In my haste, I discovered I had made an error, and thank God I had printed out. But, I mean, I even have my bid in for the 350 as a first officer. I have my bid in for the 330 as a first officer, 76400. All of those, actually, I can hold more than likely uh, in Atlanta, or well, at least the 76400, uh, depending on how it all, all pans out. But that's what I've been doing. That's my excitement. Keep it short and sweet. Make sure you put a uh, bid in for that 777 first officer. I, yes, I did. <laughs> that's uh being retired there. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, people, a lot of people have been uh, asking and are concerned for uh, both of us, Dana, and the fact that, you know, our fleet is being retired rapidly. Like this is pretty much the next couple of weeks is it for passenger service at Acme airlines for the MD 88 and MD 90 jets. Um, so uh, what happens is that uh, don't worry, Dana and I are still going to be paid. Um, and unless you get furloughed here, um, you know, you, you get paid and, uh, it's based on, even if you're not there, there are going to be some pilots in this displacement bid that well, will be unassigned because there are just not enough jets, uh, in the fleet to, to fly at Acme airlines, unless you're furloughed, you will be making the reserve guarantee on the lowest paying position, which would be the, uh, the Boeing 717, uh, which is really, as we all know, uh, another mad dog or an angry puppy or whatever you want to call it, an MD-95. Um, so, you know, I'm happy that people are concerned about, you know, the the fact that uh, we're not flying the mad dog anymore, but uh, we're going to be okay. And uh, both Dana and I, especially myself, but Dana uh, also has enough seniority to avoid being furloughed, at least for now. We, for now, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, but I think but, you, yeah. I think you're going to be safe. But uh, and a lot of people are wondering about that whole process. And so, as as Dana alluded to, there's a displacement bid, and we put our preferences in. The bid actually opened up on Friday, and it closes um, a week from well, no, next Monday. So it's a ten Memorial day period day. Uh, yeah. that uh, the thing is open, and then it's going to take a while. They feed all this stuff into a big computer, and it and it's probably going to be a it's probably going to take a while to kind of do all the number crunching and get people, you know, about where they're supposed to be. And and, and, they, and they plug it into a Commodore 64. Yeah, so that's going to take even longer. Because <laughs> that's where technology tends to be. 
Yeah, that's, you know, that used to be true, but not so much anymore. I think that uh, Acme has really stepped up the technology game quite a bit in the last few years. But uh, anyway, um, so it's true. So you put in, you know, your choices for what you want to displace to, and then based on your seniority and based on, you know, as, as Dana mentioned, the reason why he has so many bid preferences in is because you can say, well, you know, I, I wouldn't mind flying for for me, for instance, uh, the 757-767-767ER uh, category, but I don't want to be anything less than 50% seniority in that category in Atlanta. So uh, you can specify where you want, you know, what your cutoff is going to be, and, and you can just go crazy and put in all kinds of different um choices and scenarios and that kind of thing that's why it's so that's why it takes so long for the big giant computer to kind of do all the number crunching but anyway um i think right now unless i go back in there to change things i'll just do the easiest and path of least resistance and um, downgrade to the 717 and then kind of see what happens in the next year after all the dust settles and we kind of have a better idea of how quickly the economy is going to recover and how quickly the travel industry will recover. And then um, there's, it's very likely there are rumors out there that the 717 is also being considered for retirement. Uh, so if that happens, then I'll have a maybe a better idea of which category or what what fleet to go to after that for my last few years at acme airlines so i'm kind of surprised you're not going after the 7576 now because i I know you wanted to fly it and there's a lot of uh, openings on it per se yeah but it's also shrinking it's also shrinking actually um the uh the fleet and so yeah i don't know i still may go that way um I, i haven't made my final decision yet Yes. Thank Especially you, Liz. Pay-wise. <laughs> uh, pay, I don't really care. Um, you know, I can make up for uh, whatever uh, difference in pay rate there is by, because I'd be very senior on the 717. So, in fact, right now I'd be number three on it. So, um, I know that that will change uh, now that the 88 and 90 fleet is being retired, but um, I'll still be probably top 10% seniority on it. I just want to respond to Matt Thorne here. Yes, it's known as the triple nickel. He says five day trips, five leg days, five less dollars an hour. That's about right. Yeah, <laughs> but <It's> triple nickel. <laughs> you, you, well, what was it? Matt, what was it um, not for me. I'm not going to be flying five day trips, five day leg days. <laughs> so, don't worry that that will be not the kind of trip that I'll be flying. And and I get where you're coming from, Jeff, about us being being able to make up some some thing some time. But philosophically, for me, and this is just me and speaking for me only, if there are going to be pilots that are going to be furloughed, I will not work any extra because if they need us to work extra, that means they need to have the pilots on the street, not mm-hmm. at the company. So yeah, I know there are a lot of a lot of people don't think that way, but I will certainly um, not be picking up anything extra. Because of just philosophically based on that fact. Well, even if I didn't, I, I can, you know, I'm in the um, the downhill phase of my career right now. So um, it's, you know, the money is not so critical. All my kids are uh, out of college. So, you know, that's a pay raise in itself. All right. Oh, looks like uh, Steph will be joining us soon. In the meantime, let me uh, just get you caught up with me. 
Um, I flew a three-day trip over the weekend, picked that up, and uh, left on Friday, uh, non-revved up to Pittsburgh. I was there Friday night and Saturday night, and then came home one leg on Sunday morning. And uh, then I did a Philly turn, a, a Philadelphia turn from Atlanta on Monday. Uh, my first officer on the uh, Philly turn is uh, someone who is on reserve, and he picked up this uh, trip um, on a on a green slip, we call it. Uh, and he wanted to make sure that he could fly the airplane at least one last time before um, he um, goes on, or we all go on reserve next month, and there are no airplanes to fly. So this was, he thinks, will be his last. Uh, trip on the uh, on the jet and so when we came back into atlanta um he was flying and and uh i kind of communicated with the atlanta tower controller and uh thought i'd share this with you we had a little fun hello tower acme 95 we're on a visual approach one way eight left acme 1595 atlanta tower went one five zero six from my eight left atlanta clear to atlanta one way yeah, this is Acme. PT-95. This is probably the last landing for this co-pilot sitting next to me here on this jet. So if you guys could give us a good uh, review. PT-95, ready. And say it's good no matter what it is. I'll let you know. <laughs> He's looking good so far. <laughs> T-95, the crosswind correction was impressive. The flare was spot on. I thought I think he did a pretty good job. T95 at Bravo 10, cross from 8 right, join Echo to the ramp on this frequency. At Bravo 10, cross 8 right, and stay with you on this frequency. T95, thanks for the uh, grading score there. No problem, you A plus. It was really nice in here, too. T95, is it really your last flight? Uh, probably so. Uh, I'm not on the schedule the rest of this month, and I think they're going to be all parked by the end of the month. So that was probably it. Well, congratulations, and uh, hope you have a great great future from here. Thank you so much. I tried to find a fire truck for you, but they're uh, a little late notice for me. <laughs> that would have been nice, like at the approach end, to kind of just flare right underneath it. I have to remember that, see if we can coordinate something like that next time. Now, clearly everybody was confused there because they kept using the wrong call sign. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, yeah, I was going to mention that. I know who those, who those guys are. I know, I know of Acme 1895. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I'm going to have to do some uh, editing <laughs> before I release the uh, – I didn't even think of it until now. It's like, oh, yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Still, it sounded great. I, I'm guessing air traffic's pretty quiet. At the yes, moment. very quiet. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. If, if it was normal Atlanta operations, you know, wouldn't have time to you know, do stuff like that. But uh, the the airplane that landed ahead of us was, you know, probably at the gate by the time we got onto the tower frequency. So wow. um, very, very quiet. And by the way, that was also compressed in time. Um, you know, it would have taken a probably an extra few minutes to go through all that. But uh, anyway, had a, had a good time and uh, enjoyed flying with uh, my first officer there. That's the first time that I'd ever flown with him and, and uh, he's a really, really good pilot. So good luck to him. 
uh, he's probably going to be one of those that uh, is unassigned. Um, hopefully he'll be able to avoid being furloughed, but um, the, the way the numbers are working out, um, he'll be very lucky if he's actually assigned any airplane at all after this displacement. But, you know, in time, he'll uh, be back with us and going strong. So, hey, um, I just noticed that we have somebody that uh, is joining us that wasn't here right away. And uh, that is, of course, the IPA connoisseur, Dr. Steph. <laughs> hey, Captain And Jeff. all the other stuff. I don't know if that picture really screams IPA connoisseur and, or not, but... Uh... I was just going to sneak in here and just listen. You guys have been doing a great job on the show so far. So, uh, oh, thanks. Don't let me. No, I, I apologize for my uh, my tardiness. Uh, actually, this is about well a little later than I planned. I was thinking about three thirty after I looked at my schedule today. Uh, I didn't quite realize we had set the time so early for this afternoon. Um, yeah, and then you know things always go to plan uh, while you're at work. So, right on time for, for the finish there. Uh, no, that that didn't work out unfortunately. <laughs> Never does. It was, you know, and it always is the very last thing that seems to screw things up. Like the day went so smoothly. It was, everything was on time, you know, uh, no real snags, no, nothing unusual going on. Um, and then the last patient of the day, there was some sort of miscommunication with their ride and they had to go back to the car and it took forever. And yeah. So. We can identify because in our world, it always happens on the last flight home. Right. It's never, it's never the very first, never in the middle of the day where you could like, you know, make up some time. It's always, I just was sitting around for, you know, a good 35, 40 minutes waiting. So (laughs) my apologies. No problem. Yeah. Um, what have I been up to this week? Um, last weekend, actually not a whole lot. Um, I just really had a nice, uh, kind of quiet weekend. I'm trying to think, did I do anything, uh, even remotely interesting? Well, I know what you did on Saturday. What did I do? What was this past week? The recording of the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We did that. See, it even hasn't, hasn't even been that long. Like, I know. I try to think what happened in that time and not much. I didn't do anything. On, I um, Saturday that was a day that was pretty hot because I did the Jeep top. We recorded the show. Mm-hmm. Sunday was also pretty warm and nice. It's supposed to be a lake day Sunday, right? Yeah, it was lake day. We got in the lake, my neighbor and I, and it was... Uh, the air was warm. The water was not. Oh. Uh, it's still not warmed up very much. It was quite chilly and it was breezier on Sunday. So I spent most of the afternoon kind of freezing my butt off in the lake, but it was it was actually worth it. It was nice. I read a book and had a nice conversation with my brother for about an hour and a half and nice conversation with my neighbor. You know, we're solving all the world's problems uh, while floating on the lake and consuming uh, some Hard, uh, or well, what are they? The Trulies and the White Claws. <laughs> I was going to say you need a little more antifreeze in your in your veins if you're going to be in the lake right now. Yeah, I don't have enough. Uh, yeah, it's it's a little chilly in the water still, you, and, and it's pouring rain today, so that's not helping the water temperature for Memorial Day weekend coming. Yeah, up. it's going to be but cold. I'm not going to be in the lake this weekend. I think I'm going to be out doing some flying. Oh, cool! So I have an invitation to play first officer uh, with. Uh, local skydiving group and they have a new to them aircraft a kodiak um which i've actually seen and it is it's reasonable for for a jump plane the thing is like brand new it's only five years old um it's got all um um advanced avionics in it it's got similar to what um the cirrus actually has in it the garmin product there which is the garmin perspective i forget what they call it in the kodiak but very similar to that so is that the one that looks kind of like a cessna caravan a little bit yeah okay 
Oh, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think I saw one of them at uh, Oshkosh last uh, last Probably. July. Yeah. I'm sure there was one nice there. Looking but I've been sent yeah. a uh, uh, POH, and that's my bedtime reading for the, the rest of the week. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, will there yeah. Will there be a test? No. That's good. Because <laughs> I'm really just there to hang out and ride along for the most part. But All right. I mean, if I'm going to be sitting up front, I should probably know something about the aircraft. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Generally a good idea. Generally a good idea. Yep. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I figured there wouldn't be a heck of a lot to talk about uh, on the getting to know us segment, at at least for the three of us that did the show on Saturday. Yeah. So, um, I mean, all I'll say is that it seems like it's pretty close to business as usual here for me. It's been really, really busy at work again all of a sudden. Um, people are really trying to get back in and take care of stuff that they've put off. And we're still trying to make sure that we do that in a safe manner, make sure everything is cleaned and sanitized and not having too many overlapping patients and people. So yeah, overlapping it's a little bit of a challenge. Mm, yeah. Well, it's, you know, not too many people hanging around in the same, same place, the waiting room and at the checkout counter and things like that. Very good. Yep. All right. Well, nothing else for me. Um, I think next week I have another one of those three day trips that is not going to be a three day trip because the grand rapid stuff is still, not happening. So, uh, much like the one that I did earlier this week, um, on Monday, I'll be flying up to Philadelphia and then back to Atlanta. And that might be the last flight that I'll have in the, uh, mad dog fleet at Acme. So I'll let you know there's possible, a possibility I could pick up something like a, another day trip or whatever before the end of the month, but we'll see. And with that, I think it's now time for Coffee vote. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, the coffee fund is uh, it's a word from our sponsors. Those sponsors are those fine folks that contribute to the show via the Airline Pilot Guy Coffee Fund. You can become part of the Coffee Fund Cadre or the Coffee Bar Club, whichever you prefer. I don't care what you call them. I call them awesome. And since the last episode, using the Coffee Fund Classic Method, recurring payments from Chris Randall and David Lieb. And uh, no new patrons since the last episode, which was only a few days ago. So that's cool. Um, so if you want to become part of this great group of folks uh, to financially support the podcast, please head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will too. Captain, incoming message. Love that. <laughs> Thank you, Nick, for making the new uh, bumper. That's um, okay. It's, it's a overlays. picture of Steph. <laughs> well, that is Steph. Oh, I, yeah, yeah. I never noticed that. Yeah, I that? noticed. <laughs> blowing, blowing me out with feedback. Blowing my ears yeah. out. <laughs> All right. Not the most flattering proof. Anyway. <laughs> oh, I, I like it. I like it, too. Is that right? I like it, too. It, 
yeah, it works for the purpose. <laughs> All right. The first item in our feedback notebook is from Ham Radio Jim. And actually, it was, uh, oh, this is for Captain Nick. He says, Nick, so sorry to hear of your father's passing. Thank you for sharing a little bit of his life with us. What a wonderful father you have and such a loving son. 7-3, Ham Radio Jim. Whiskey 2, November Sierra Foxtrot. Isn't that lovely? Uh, in the radio world, we call it going silent key. Um, but the old man, uh, actually, he probably would have been uh, pretty good on the Morse key uh, in his old days because, uh, you know, even the pilots used to be able to do that. And certainly when he was a first officer without a you know, a two-man crew, you know, flying those old DC-2s, he might well have been doing that, although I think even they had radio operators. Um, but uh, no, that's very nice of you, Jim. Thank you very much indeed. And he sent a, a, a lovely uh, link to a YouTube video which um, is one of those virtual choir performances where, um, you know, they get everyone to send in their uh, singing of a, of a famous song and then somebody with an awful lot of spare time because there must have been, I don't know, close on 50 or so of these uh, wonderful singers, uh, puts it all together, takes out all the latency, matches them all up, and then turns it into a, a, a beautiful piece of music. It was uh, a singing, uh, a rendition of uh, Waltzing Matilda, which was very much an old soldier's song from, uh, you know, the First World War and even the Second World War. And, and it's, it's a, you know, it's a lovely old folk song of uh, Australia uh, that uh, I, I, can't, I don't think an Australian, there's Australian alive who can't sing it. So that's how well known it is. And, of course, it, um, it's especially uh, poignant because it was a tribute to uh, the Anzacs, which stands for Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, the uh, Commonwealth nations that uh, helped the United Kingdom. Uh, in fact, did so much to uh, help the uh, help Britain um, survive during the bad days of the war. And of course, then the, we were lo lo lucky enough to be held uh, helped by the New World uh, when uh, you guys joined him. So uh, it really was uh, a, a fearsome time. And uh, uh, they uh, every year on Anzac Day, which is one of the Australia Memorial Days, uh, they uh, start off with uh, a parade at dawn. And uh, then uh, the old man always used to love uh, Anzac Day, and he was out there walking with the veterans or marching with the veterans uh, until only re very recently, last few years, he was just a little too infirm. And for a while, they uh, t drove him around inside a Willie's Jeep, uh, which Steph would approve of, and uh, an old World War II Jeep. And uh, yeah, absolutely. The last time, Those are cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I was lucky enough to escort him to one where, which was very local because he couldn't even manage that towards the end. So uh, that was a great day. Yeah. Um, the link to that YouTube will be in the show notes. It's a beautiful rendition of Waltzy Matilda. Yeah. Um, going along the same theme uh, with condolences for your father's passing. Uh, this is from Sam. And he said, good morning, Nick. I was very saddened to hear of the death of your father on the latest APG. My partner's father is currently suffering from brain cancer in Auckland, so you have my deepest sympathy. 
Your Plain Tales interviews with your father were amongst my favorite episodes. He lived an incredible life, and while it's only a small commiseration, 97 is great is a great innings. Uh, I hope you are doing well. My thoughts are with you, and I'll raise a toast to Andy Anderson later today. Kind regards, Sam. That's so kind of you, Sam, and I thank you very much indeed. Um, Andy's journey is over, uh, but it sounds like your father still has a fight on his hands. So I think all of us would like to uh, wish him the best with that. And, uh, um, you know, good luck, uh, basically. Yeah. We also received some audio feedback from Brent in Australia. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Brent Grapes. I'm a long-time listener to the APG, but I've never had the courage to submit any feedback until now. When, when I heard the news that Captain Nick's father had passed away, I really wanted to share my story of meeting, um, meeting this incredible man and, and pay just my own small tribute to him. Uh, a few years back, I actually met Captain Nick and his um, dad out at Jandicott Airport, which is the um, general aviation airport here in Perth, Western Australia. And immediately I was just struck by how much Captain Nick and his father were just true gentlemen. They were witty, generous. They were just really fun people to be around. And uh, we chatted for quite a few hours about aviation and they were just so generous with their time and their knowledge and all of their stories. Uh, I'm a, I'm a musician. I'm a trumpeter like Captain Jeff. I, I now work in an orchestra. I'm a classical musician. But before I joined the orchestra, I was actually a member of the Australian Army Band Corps. And when I heard that Andy Anderson had passed away, I really wanted to pay my respects to the military service um, that he put in for our country. Uh, in most Commonwealth countries, we pay tribute to our servicemen and women with two bugle calls. And I'd like to share this music in honour of a fallen airman and father who is very dear to the whole APG community. So the first uh, bugle call that we would play is called The Last Post. Uh, it represents the end of the day and it shows that it's time for the soldier to lay down and rest. This is followed by a short period of silence and reflection and then we play a second bugle call which is called Rouse. And Rouse signifies the start of a new day. It uh, literally means to the soldiers, get out of bed. <laughs> and um, it's a reminder for them to get to work. But as a memorial, Rouse represents the dawn of a new day. It's an opportunity for those of us left to pay thanks that we can wake up and live in freedom. And it's an opportunity to thank those servicemen who have paid the ultimate price. Uh, before the bugle sounds, we read a short poem called The Ode of Remembrance, and it's by the poet Lawrence Binion. I'd like to share this service with you as a tribute to an airman, a husband, and a father. They shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them, lest we forget.
very touching. Yeah, yeah cheers, Brent. I've got a real, real. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I just <clears throat> gets pretty. I think it gave us all goosebumps and that and was amazing. Was absolutely beautiful. Just unbelievable. I do need to, he brought us down below the 50% there because he said he was a trumpet player like captain Jeff. And I'm sorry, Brent, <laughs> you're, you're like so many levels above where I am as a trumpet player. So you're wrong. You're not a trumpet player like me. You're so amazingly good. So, and that was very touching. Yeah, I think I've yeah. got my voice back. Um, Brent was so kind. He uh, he said he would um, like to play at uh, Andy's funeral. And, of course, the restrictions and the fact that it all happened so quickly, uh, there was a very small private um, uh, cremation. And um, uh, we're going to try and have a, a tribute to Andy, a memorial, um, at his old life-saving club on a beautiful beach, uh, Cottesloe Beach. Uh, that'll happen end of this year, beginning of next year, somewhere around that when we can all travel again and uh, everything works. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and Brent's agreed to come along and play that. There's not going to be a dry eye in the house. Uh, so uh, really appreciate that, Brent. It was great meeting you at uh, Jandicott. Loved it. Uh, and uh, you're right, Jeff. He, he's not just any uh, trumpet player. Um, I, I met uh, uh, a couple of real aficionados of classical music a few days after we met met Brent, and um, we were having a few beers at a pub uh, with Andy and Carol, and uh, you know we're all there together. And I just happened to mention we've met him, and they were aghast, and they said, "Wow, you met." Brent Graves, he's fantastic. Oh, we just love him. You realize he's the principal trumpet of the Western Australian Symphony Orchestra, and he is just one of the most remarkable uh, trumpet players, uh, you know, in the world. And I was going, wow, <laughs> wow, that's impressive. And it was really their reaction to the fact that we'd actually met him um, <laughs> that stunned me more than anything else and uh, it's so nice that he listens to the show and uh, absolutely fabulous so thank you very much indeed brent yeah that um just hearing the tone of his of that bugle was just amazing very very talented very talented oh wow <laughs> uh, how do you continue after that i mean it's just wow <laughs> i'm just glad that um Captain Nick tried to say something because I wasn't able to get anything out of my my sound box. <laughs> so, <clears throat> voice box. All right. Well, to keep it down under, um, we received this from Glaucus um, a little while ago, and we kind of answered it, sort of, um, but there was a lingering uh, question here for Miami Rick that we didn't get a chance to ask. And so... Mm. He said, a final quick question to Miami Rick. The saying uh, goes that we should never meet our idols, but you managed to do that by flying the 747. Was the experience in line with your expectations? Is she really a nice machine to fly? I still love to fly in it as a passenger, but the QF ones were getting a bit long in the tooth. Oh, the 747. I tell you, uh, 
I think no boy or girl out there that dreams of flying airplanes, you know, imagines or hopes or doesn't hope to, you know, get to fly the 747 someday or somehow. And the, the sad part is, is that as, as time goes on, the chances are less and less, you know, to, to fly these bigger planes. So, you know, absolutely for me growing up, you know, with my gay skyward, it was, it was, it was always a dream of mine to get the flyer. So, uh, when, when I finally got to do it, uh, first I had to pinch myself to, you know, see if I, if, it, if I was really sitting there and then getting acquainted with that airplane. Now I was lucky because I had, um, a little bit of hindsight and I could compare the 747 to other Boeing airplanes, you know, having flown the, the five, the six and the triple seven, um, the 747 is it's in a class all by itself it's just uh it's such a huge airplane but at the same time it's so responsive you know when when you when you introduce a roll you know you obviously at, at low speed you're deflecting inboard and outboard, and outboard ailerons on both wings but not only that you're also deploying a whole row of roll spoilers you know, and that 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 make the the, the control input so snappy, and um, just the the speed of that airplane is just unbelievable. How you take off, you know, the second you go above ten thousand feet, and the airplane pitches over, uh, you basically leave everyone behind in your dust because you can. What I would do is, um, I would um, I would command a climb speed of three hundred and fifty knots to Mach point eight six, Mach point eight seven, sometimes just because we could do it, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, to say that you've been able to do that, it's, 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 it's quite amazing. And, 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 then, and then just seeing another 7.4 in flight when you're, you know, you see, you see another uh, four-plume contrail coming at you, and you know it's another 7.4, and just to see that closure rate of almost Mach 2, and feel that little bump and just reminds yourself of how big that thing is. And then, then landing it is really the easiest airplane to land because of the sheer size of it. Um, the wingspan on the dash shade is 225 feet. So when you're coming into land, you enter ground effect at one half the wingspan. So it's about 110 feet that you start feeling that cushion of air underneath you. And all you have to do is just kind of ride that out, hold your attitude little bit of power and just kind of feel the energy of the airplane and just slowly bring the power back and let her settle such an easy airplane to land too so um and the whole thing kind of ties together as you you know unstrap your lap belt and your shoulder harnesses and you button her up for the night you head downstairs to the main deck and then once again down to the tarmac and you look behind you and you're like jesus is that what i was strapped on to just now and because it's like flying a city block so Oh, absolutely! It was it was it was everything I I, I I thought it would be, and then and then some. It's uh, I hope to fly her again. Hopefully, hopefully in the next uh, couple of years. Well, you know, to kind of tie it even more together, um, because we were just talking about the passing of of uh, Nick's father, Andy. Um, I believe that was his favorite airplane, right? The seven forty seven. Oh, for sure. Yeah, he considered it the absolute pinnacle of his uh, career. He loved it. Yeah, so it's you uh, know, as as a as as an, uh, a casual observer and outsider, I've never flown on the seven forty seven, but when I stepped foot on, I got a tour of one uh, at the gate, 
And one of the things that I noticed, uh, the most prevalent thing that I noticed is when you walk on the airplane, whenever you walk on any other aircraft, you're always looking, you'd see almost like a tube formation, right? It's, it's, it looks like a tube because the walls come up and they're curved above you. And uh, the 747, you walk, the first thing I walk, noticed when I walked in is that the walls essentially straight yep so that was that to me i mean i i'm 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 amiss in 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 regretting i never got a chance to fly on the airplane now that uh uh acme red has is effectively retired their 747 fleet i probably will never have that opportunity but um that's one of my observations whenever i saw the aircraft no it's and it's it's just just as you say and uh that's one of the. That was one of the big selling points of the seven forty seven. In fact, Joe Sutter mentioned that um, uh, the fact that um, it really it really belies the size of the thing because as you sit up, you know, by, by by a window on the lower deck, there's barely any curvature to that sidewall. And another thing that I remember the first time, the first time I set foot on a on a seven four freighter was actually when I was on. I was still flying the triple seven, and I was down in Quito. Um, down there in South America, doing a flower run from Quito back up to Miami, and one of the uh, Acme Giants uh, seven uh, seven fours parked next to us. And I was like, "Ah, oh, what the hell? I'll go down there check it out." And so I, you know, went down the stairs in my triple seven across, and then up the stairs to the seven four, and then up to the main deck, introduced myself, and then uh, the uh, the captain brought me upstairs. I met the rest of the guys, and I remember uh, walking into the flight deck. November 496, Mike Charlie, I'll never forget. Uh, and I sat up front and just, just if, if, if you've, if you've ever sat in the, well, obviously, you know, we all have, cause we're all pilots, but uh, if you've ever sat in, in, in the flight deck of an airplane of, of an airliner, you're, you're, you're pretty high up off the ground at, to begin with. You sit in the flight deck of a 747 and it's like you're in a fourth or fifth story. It's just insane how high off the ground you are. And I, I remember thinking to myself, this is a little tight to be uh, the flight deck of such a big airplane. But then you forget that you are on the second story and at the very, very you know little point of the airplane there. So it's very aerodynamic, very, very tight quarters and so high off the ground that I've, I just kept thinking, how the heck do these guys even land this thing? Because... I just couldn't imagine the sight picture being right, but you know, just like everything else, you, you get to do it. And, uh, and all of a sudden it becomes easy, um, till you don't do it anymore. So I hope, I hope to one day go back because it was a, it was a lot of, a lot of fun, great places. I got to see the world in that airplane and, and flying the dream lifter. It was, it was, it was like being a celebrity everywhere you went. There was cameras and people waving. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was fun. It was a good time. Yeah, I, I think that you'll probably have another chance to fly it before your career is over. Yeah, I think so, too. I, I don't think they're going anywhere for cargo yeah. stuff anytime soon. Yeah, they'll be around. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of rubber dog <laughs> to move around. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I hear Hong Kong's wow. a place to go, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, I guess it's time for a beer then. <laughs> well, I've got one. Oh, mine's right behind me. I had to put it in the freezer when I got here because it was sitting out. I neglected to do that last night. I've been too busy. I know. Hopefully it's cold. Well, you know, we have a, a short piece of audio feedback that um, we're, we played on an earlier show, but we're going to play it again because uh, maybe Rick can, can uh, give some kind of an answer for this. Not sure. It's a tough question. Hello, everybody. Pip here. 
just out and about trying to uh, work off some of the my massively increased uh, beer intake for these last six weeks. Terrible, really. Anyway, just trying to burn off some calories here. Uh, listen, I've got a question for you. I- I'm rather hoping Rick is on the uh, show because I'd quite like to hear his thoughts on this. And it's a question about seniority. At my airline and at most other airlines, I'm curious to hear what happens at yours. If uh, if you have a pilot, let's say he's been in the company a few years, he's got a little bit of seniority, and then he leaves the company. He uh, he resigns and he goes elsewhere. And then some years later, let's say three-ish, four years later, he decides to come back to your company. Does he come back with his original <laughs> seniority? Now, I'm guessing that the answer would be no. Certainly at my outfit, if someone leaves and comes back, then they'll start at the bottom of the seniority pile. Uh, and I'm, I'm guessing it's the same at yours. So perhaps you can just answer that question. And then the second part of that question is this. How is it, and God bless him, I love him dearly, but how is it that Rick has come back into the Acme seniority list at the same level at that which he left? I think there's something very dodgy going on there. And if I was Nick or Dana, I'd be writing a very strongly worded letter to my APG union rep. It seems like there's some uh, some dodgy deals going on there at the uh, upper levels of APG management. Maybe some brown envelopes full of cash being exchanged under table somewhere. Not quite sure how that works. Anyway... Hoping everyone is well and looking forward to better times ahead where we can all meet up and give each other a big sloppy BFF podcast hug. See you later. <laughs> ah, that was a good one. <laughs> well, first of all, Pip, it was, I did, it was a leave of absence <laughs> for operational, uh, operational uh, reasons. Uh, the crew would, uh, the crew would uh, re- record at uh, 2, 3, 4 you know, p.m. Eastern time and I'd be... Uh, in Kazakhstan somewhere and uh internet connection out of my hut wasn't very well well it wasn't very good so uh that's one thing yeah but you know on, on a serious note uh no i mean if and and it's and it's interesting because um that uh, that question kind of kind of plays a little bit of uh, with uh, sadly with what's going on right now in the industry uh so a lot a lot of our uh well i'm not say a lot but you know some 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 of our pilots uh a few of them have left for uh, for passenger outfits uh, not too long ago, actually. You know, with, inside the last uh, year, year, year and a half, uh, and uh, now they're looking at coming back. Um, and sadly, you know, it's not how it works in the airlines. So you you, you leave, uh, and when you come back, you come back uh, without your seniority. Obviously, you have a. We have your track record. We know the kind of person you are. Uh, I don't imagine you'd go through the entire. Uh, screening process and all that, but um, you have to think about the fact that uh, first you left of your own volition. It was it was something that you wanted to do, and then uh, there's guys uh, and gals ahead of you that uh, have now moved up a couple seniority numbers and are not willing to give them back. So, right, simple as that. That's the way. At, le- at least that's the way it works here in in the new world. Um, the way our seniority setup is you know you start right from the bottom if there's a space for you (laughs) that you could be a caveat right there yeah to begin with and uh 
Anyway, I, you know, your explanation of um, relative seniority uh, at uh, Acme Air uh, was spot on. That's basically what I said in your absence. So, um, anyway. Yeah. I'm still looking for my union rep. <laughs> <laughs> no unions here, baby. Pay HR more money. <laughs> uh, exactly. You have, to, you have to kick back more of your salary, more of your monthly salary. That's, that's how it works. Well, I already give a 30%. How much do you need? 100%. What? what? Uh, <laughs> sorry, it's just. I'm sorry. This is the way it is. The way it goes. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> everybody's having fun with that. So, uh, all right. Um, Thomas uh, sent in some audio feedback regarding the survival of freight carriers. Let's hear what he has to say. Hey, APG guys, gals, everybody. This is Thomas, and I wanted to send a piece of feedback in in regards to a conversation that Rick and Nick had during the news segment on the last episode, which is currently episode 423 when this reaches you. And that was in regards to increased pressure potentially being put on dedicated freight carriers by legacy airlines as legacy airlines try to find their place in a COVID and potentially now, you know, in in the near-ish future, a more or less post-COVID world? And, you know, are they really going to be putting more pressure on these dedicated freight carriers because they're finding that the legacy airlines have a space in freight? And um, as somebody who worked a freight ramp, a dedicated freight ramp, for about six months, um, I have a little bit of a perspective that I think maybe Rick could attest to, and maybe he disagrees with or agrees with, but I'd like to get his input either way. And um, just some food for thought. And I think really what it comes down to is the the legacy carriers are missing something that they gave. Well, some of them never had and that a lot of them gave up a long time ago. And that is the 747. Um, specifically, the 747, even if they did have it, is a 747 that couldn't do one of the most vital things that I think really makes the 747, the queen of the freight industry specifically. And that is the nose load capability that comes with a factory built freighter. And what I say by that is not a Boeing converted freighter, a BCF, or uh, there are some other third party conversions out there as well, but not a freighter that used to be an airliner that these, even the legacy carriers who do have them could conceivably go and create if they wanted. But these Boeing 400 and 800 Fs that come out of the factory intended for life as a freighter with the capability of nose loading as a rampy, um, you're able to do so much more. There is a there's a lot more freedom in the way that you can move cargo on and off the aircraft as far as we can shunt pallets forward. Um, you know, we can store pallets just off the nose on a K loader, which allows us to pull the tail off the aircraft or pull the tail forward and reload, which is a huge deal if you're doing a partial load because you have to manage that CG and make sure you keep it on or forward of the main gear. If you get after that main gear and your CG shifts, you can absolutely stand 747 on its tail. Thankfully, I did not work for a company that did that. Um, I worked for a company that loaded several different airlines. We worked with wide body, narrow body, um, 74777, as well as um, the little narrow body variants that I'd rather not talk about because they weren't nearly as much fun. But um, even an Airbus for you, Nick, there was a narrow body Airbus in there every once in a while. 
But um, what we did the most and what I worked with the most was on the main floor of the seven fours. And the difference between loading a freighter that does and doesn't have that nose loading capability is immense. And um, I think it is something that's understated because nobody really thinks about it. And I think Rick would be the one to attest to it. But the ability that we have to turn around an aircraft when we can load through the nose is undoubtedly shorter. We don't raise the nose on every flight. It's not necessary on every flight. But when we need to, having that extra flexibility is really, really cool and really, really helpful because we can put that freight where we need it faster and more efficiently and more safely. And also, there's a lot of critical infrastructure parts out there that are not built to be ULD friendly. Um, they are not built to be air freight friendly. And what that means is you see some weird ULD configurations, always safe, always built to spec. Um, in fact, the carriers that contracted with the outfit Rick flies for were probably some of my strictest loadmasters I got the pleasure of working with. But um, they they would have to load through the nose. There would be no other way to get this stuff where it needed to be on time if it were not for those 400 or 800 Fs. And really, that is, I think it is weird as it sounds, just being able to load through the nose of an aircraft and not having another aircraft out there that has that capability. That's That's a market that the freight industry has always had cornered and will continue to have cornered. So as much as our legacy carriers can pick up the freight from, you know, that vast majority of what we think about, which is the FedEx and the UPS and, you know, these pre-built ULDs of the, you know, the, the tapered ULDs that fit on the underbelly and are really just full of cardboard boxes and packages and things. But when it comes down to the heavy freight, um, you know, to the vehicles and it comes down to things like that, we, we ship on seven fours and that is, that is where the freight really goes. And not just that, but the dedicated seven four freighters really do make an impact on the industry. So I sound like I'm sold out on the seven four, maybe because out of all the aircraft I loaded, it's quite legitimately my favorite aircraft to work on. And that was a huge part of it because it was the easiest one to turn around and it had the most flexibility in the way that the floor was laid out and the way that the aircraft was set up. It was built to do work. Um, so I think that 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 is really the crux of it for me. The 747 is so capable that it's going to get these freight-dedicated carriers through a time where the legacy carriers definitely are able to impinge on some of their profits for the more simple freight, shall we say. But anyway, I'm sure Rick can say quite a bit more about it, and I would leave it to him. But I, uh, I digress. Are you kidding? Rick can't say a lot about anything. Kenny? No, I, I have absolutely nothing to say about that. At, uh, <laughs> Which reminds me, we haven't heard the rickets once yet. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> well, uh, I, I agree with him 100% there. And I tell you, having oh, that's a little premature on the rickets. Sorry. I know, really. Premature. You got to um, give me 10 activation. minutes. <laughs> um, no, I think it's perfect. You know, for the second, the 747 uh, answer we've had today. So start them straight away. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Quite, you're quite right, Nick. Well, but uh, but but seriously, are the uh, the having flown both the seven four freighter and the and the Boeing converted freighter, and then um, on the other hand, the 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 Boeing triple seven freighter, which is it's 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 just a triple seven, kinda. It's it's got the the wing and engine and main landing gear of the three hundred ER with the fuselage of the two hundred, but obviously you don't have a nose loading capability. I remember flying. Um, 
where were we going? We were going down to Brazil somewhere out of uh, out of Miami, and uh, I remember walking out of the. Uh, uh, this one I used to fly for Acme South. I remember walking out of the operations building and seeing this um, this huge loader with these. Uh, they were uh, drill bits for oil uh, oil exploration, and I remember these guys trying to fit these drill. I mean, obviously they fit, and then we took them down there, but. Uh, watching these guys working their, you know, their, their butts off trying to get these drill bits lined up the right way on that side door in the triple seven. And then once we land and, you know, flying down there, I think the whole time, man, this is going to be uh it's going to take them a little while to get this gar- this load off the jet. And, it, and it, indeed it did. And, and contrasting that, comparing that to how easy it is to load and unload a 747. I mean, you, uh, you, you land, uh, you open the, 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 the nose, lo- uh, the nose, uh, nose door there. And, uh, you know, inside of two hours, you can have an entire 747 unloaded and, uh, you know, loaded back in, loaded back on again about the next hour or so. So, uh, turnaround time really is quick. Um, and, uh, and just just as you said, you know, the the seven forty seven is very very forgiving when it comes to uh, uh, shifting uh, center of gravity issues when loading and unloading the airplane. But um, to counteract some of that, I don't know if you've noticed. Sometimes they'll uh, they'll actually put a tail stand on the seven four or on airports down in uh, particularly. I, I've seen this a lot in China, where you park and then they'll uh, they'll throw a chain around the nose strut of the jet to basically anchor it down to the ground uh, to keep the airplane from you know, tipping on its tail uh, if, if, if the loader somehow uh, mess up the load and unloading procedure. But he's tr- he's, he's right. Uh, the, the loading and unloading the 7-4 through the nose door is, 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 a, is a non-event. It just happens so quickly that it's, 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 it's a breeze, really. Don't they sometimes put like a 737 under the tail just to make sure it doesn't... Yeah, just to wedge, you know, just to just yeah. wedge it in there, make sure they know. But, it's the appropriate uh, use of a seven thirty seven. Well, it's, it's usually three twenties, but uh, yeah, well, yeah, they've all got all those maxes sitting around doing nothing. It's the perfect <laughs> job for them. So say, I think the seven three might be a little bit more sturdy than that. Well, well, I was going to yeah. say the TTL stand that we have available would be much better for it now. <laughs> the TTL stand. Yes. Uh, the, I mean, they're all going to the desert anyway. So what yeah, so it'll be a perfect use for our <laughs> as well. detail scene. That's, <laughs> That's true. true. No, but it's it's just never ceases to amaze me that you know this this thing's been around since 1969, and you know we're you're we're well in the into the 21st century, and this thing's still being produced. And and looking at uh, Flight Radar 24, the number of 747s in the air is just nothing but 747s lately. You know, and that corridor between uh, uh, Tokyo and Hong Kong and Incheon and Alaska, it's like you know, it's, it's 747 highway there. It's nothing but but those jets flying around. So uh, they'll be around for a while. Just like Steffi says, I think uh, I think I'll have a chance to fly them again, hopefully here in the next uh, couple of years. You know, I got the impression that Thomas, who sent in that audio feedback, um, really likes the 747. I think so. Oh, and he was talking about ULDs. ULDs are uh, unit load devices, and these are these are uh, these 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 cans that are so you have you have uh, ULDs for for the main deck and ULDs for the uh, for the for the cargo uh, the the under you know the belly cargo area it's all all that really is is just these cans um, where you that that you basically load in warehouses and all you really do is you bring these ULDs out and then they fit 
in the in the fuselage uh, of, of the airplane. So you're not actually loading cargo directly onto the airplane. You do it in a warehouse. You weigh it. You stack them properly and all that. And then when when uh, when you load the airplane up, you do it in a certain sequence to maintain the center of gravity at a certain place. And that's one of the things we look at on the load sheet there before we sign. Make sure the airplane's center of gravity and the load sequence is correct and all that. Because uh, one, for safety, but two, uh, you want the airplane to be a little tail heavy. Um, the center gravity to be a little aft for uh, for uh, fuel economy and other factors. So uh, just just one of the things we look at there. Nice cans. Exactly. Nice cans. All right. Well, thank you very much, Thomas. Hope that answered your question. I believe it did. Um, seven, Thomas or Tomas. Uh, hey, Jeff and APG crew, longtime listener from the Netherlands, started somewhere in the upper 200s uh, episodes when I was training for my instrument rating, uh, had a very long drive to the airport, and your news and stories made it so much more fun. When I started listening, Rick was a bit mythical, Loch Ness monster style, talked about a lot, but never seen or heard. <laughs> okay. Oh, I, I see. Because uh, see, yeah. see what he did there. Yeah. yeah like awesome. That. Awesome that he's back. His knowledge and style of explaining is great to have on the show. I've since gotten a CPL, multi-engine, and dreaded European ATPL theory exams done. Woohoo! That's a lot. That's a lot of work, isn't it? It's <laughs> a ton of exams. Fourteen, I 14, think. Fourteen, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and now I'm training to become an instructor, but the COVID nineteen situation has sort of put a stop to that because we can't fly more than one person in the aircraft. So I've made an attempt at teaching for the cameras and uploading it to YouTube to get some practice. Would love to hear your feedback or from some of the CFIs in your audience. And then he gave us a, gave us a link to his YouTube uh, video, and uh, that will be in the show notes. So uh, please check it out. Give uh, Tomas some some feedback regarding how he did with his with his uh, video. I would have thought if he was good enough, he could just put the student in the aircraft and he could have a walkie-talkie <laughs> and he could talk him through it. Yeah. Don't, no, no, don't, be... don't, don't touch that. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you laugh. That's how they talk. Um, uh, people who are learning to skydive down under canopy with walkie-talkies. Really? Ah, on their, uh, yeah. I thought they used loud hailers. Hey. Yeah, all that too. Well, the left one. No, no, other left. No, the other left. Oh. The other left. You're on left. Sorry, I was. You were facing the other direction. My bad. Yeah, they just strap on a little walkie-talkie, and then yeah, the instructor gets to the ground first and talks you now. Excellent. I don't know. I remember the first time I signed up my a, my first student to go do his first uh, his uh, solo. Terrifying. Ah. <laughs> I, better, I hope i hope he got this i hope he got me he did but it's it's i don't know that first time you you sign someone off to go do something yeah mm-hmm. uh, that's a little little weird but uh he did all right overshot overshot final for about you know by about a quarter of a mile but hey <laughs> plenty yeah well you know, hey, plenty of room brought, to correct that and bring it back brought, on in. brought it back around landed the touch and go came back around it was so i slow. think we used to say uh that he stalked the runway using all available cover mm-hmm. <laughs> My first solo student uh, did the same thing. Unfortunately, it uh, brought him over into the T-38 pattern, and there was a midair and loss of life. But, you know. Yeah. Well, you're bound to lose a few, Jeff. you lose a few. Win some, lose some. It was hard. It was my first. But, you know. <laughs> I'm sure you got over it. A few yeah, beers in the. Uh, Next day was the, a new day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nothing happened. 
All right. That's uh, why we sit on the ground and they fly solo. Exactly. Yeah. It's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, item eight. This is from Chris, Crispo Peloto. And uh, he has some feedback, audio feedback for us. And uh, here we go. Hello again, APG crew. It's your friend Crispo Peloto back again with some more audio feedback. Today I was listening to episode 421 about wake turbulence. And Dana's comment about, I think it was a 7-1 that he mentioned that has more wake turbulence than he would expect. It reminded me of a comment from my captain today as we were following a golf stream down the final approach course. He commented to me that the Boeing 757 has a much more severe wake turbulence than its weight class would um, than he would expect from that weight to the extent that it actually caused a Gulf Stream to crash and killed everyone on board. So they decided to call the 757 a heavy as far as wake turbulence separation goes in order to keep that from happening again. I didn't fact check this. So you might want to check on that before you, you know, air this just in case I drop you below your 50%. I'd hate to do that to you. But I found it to be very interesting and just the two things kind of ran together. I heard them both in the same day. found it interesting that both the 7.1 and 7.5 have, you know, worse weight turbulence than you would expect. So, yeah, just thought I'd send that in to you guys. Thought it might interest you. Uh, blue skies, tailwinds, and, well, I hope you get to fly, actually. Well, some of us have been able to. And uh, Chris Bo Peloto, uh, just letting you know that, um, unfortunately, the APG fact checkers have been absent without leave for quite some time, unfortunately. But I, I did do a little a little bit of um, fact checking, your, uh, your captain. Um, it is true that a 757 did uh, turn over and cause the crash of a uh, business jet back in 1993 at uh, John Wayne Airport, uh, KSNA. Um, but it was not a Gulfstream. It was a West Wind. Um, they were, it was operated by Martin Aviation, and it was flying from Laverne, California to Santa Ana. And uh, it looks like the um, both the Boeing 75 and the West Wind were sequenced for visual approaches behind a beach. And before uh, being cleared for the visual approach, the West Wind was a closing three and a half miles behind the 757 on a converging course, which means, of course, if you're on a converging course, you're going to uh, actually that distance is going to decrease. Uh, the 757 and West Wind crews were told to slow to 150 knots. The 757 slowed below 150 and was high on final approach with a 5.6 degree descent. The west wind continued to converge about 2.1 miles behind the 757 on a three-degree approach. ATC did not specifically advise. By the way, this was a night visual approach. Uh, was not required by ATC handbook to advise the uh, west wind pilots that they were behind a Boeing 757. Uh, the captain of the west wind did discuss possible wake turbulence, and he flew the ILS one dot high, which is a technique that a lot, lot of us use to avoid wake turbulence. Um, noted the closeness to the 757 and indicated there should be no problem. Yeah, famous last words. Uh, while descending through approximately 1,100 feet, uh, the west wind encountered wake turbulence from the 757, rolled into a steep descent, and crashed. Um, so, and I think there were five on board the west wind, including the then time CEO of In and Out Burgers. I didn't know that until I was reading about this uh, just recently. 
Um, so yeah, uh, there have been, and there were actually a few other, um, events, uh, crashes, uh, caused by wake turbulence behind a 757. So back then, and until relatively recently, the 757 was classified as a, as a heavy, um, for wake turbulence criteria. And that meant, uh, you know, at least five miles in trail behind a 757. But in recent years, I don't know, it's been a few years now, uh, they recategorized uh, wake turbulence separation criteria, RECAT, they called it, or they call it. And now it really depends on what kind of um, airport or uh, ter- wake turbulence classify classification your airplane is. And uh, right now for an airplane like uh, the Mad Dog, which is a Category C for wake turbulence criteria, if we're behind a 757 or any other heavy, not I'm not talking about super heavies or super jumbos, um, minimum spacing uh, for wake turbulence is four nautical miles. But um, anyway, I have the little bit of information about uh, RECAT wake turbulence criteria and also a little bit of information about that crash at uh, John Wayne back in 1993 and that'll be in the show notes um, wow you know as I said the West Wind pilot was doing the right thing uh, however the 757 was kind of aggravating the situation because they I guess when they were told to slow down a lot of times what we'll do especially on a visual approach is decrease our descent rate and slow down as quickly as we can and then start down. And what that does is it ends up making you a little bit high on your approach. So you have a steeper approach and the West wind behind them only 2.1 miles. I could definitely see how that could have resulted in a, in a, no, that, that's exactly right. Cause uh, it's something that even, even pilots that fly these things. Um, and I've flown with a few of them don't seem to understand that these airplanes don't, uh, they don't, uh, they don't go down and slow down at the same time. So there's a little mm. bit of a, uh, depending on the airplane that you're flying, there's a little bit of a technique of how to do that, whether you're doing it visually or you're doing it on autopilot. What I like to do sometimes is when I find myself having to, um, having to slow down rather quickly, say I'm, we're doing a, uh, Airbus, Airbus talk is open descent. You guys call it clamp. I think it is. And, uh, Boeing it's called flight level change. When you're doing, when you're flying the, the the aircraft through the autopilot and in flight level change modes, so you're you're basically pitching for whatever speed you have selected. So as you go down through ten thousand feet, the flight management system is not going to bring the nose up, put the speed down at two fifty, and then continue the descent. It'll it'll you know if if you leave it alone, the airplane will just go through ten thousand feet at whatever speed you're doing above two fifty, and you you'll you'll very likely be violated because you're supposed to fly two fifty below ten. So. What I what I do is when I have to get down quick and then I have to decelerate quickly to keep going down is um, I'll get to let's say I want to decelerate to 250 below 10 I'll get to about 11,000 feet and then I'll go to vertical speed and introduce a vertical speed mode of about 300 feet a minute descent that'll bring the nose of the airplane up and then at the same time I will bring the speed the selected speed down to 250 knots let the airspeed bleed to 250. And then re-engage flight level change and keep going down because, as I said, and as as, as uh, Jeff said, these airplanes do not slow down and go down at the same. It's really, really hard. And uh, airplanes like the seven forty seven, you have to not only that, you have to also keep in mind the mass, the, the sheer mass of these airplanes, the inertia. So uh, you either go down or you slow down. You can't do both. So Nick, how many um, biz jets did you flip over and make crash behind your I lost big three forty? You lost count. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean uh, after the first 10 or so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, Details. to be truthful, at uh, Heathrow, by the time I, uh, you know, was uh, at the point of retiring, they had a completely different system, uh, and it wasn't based on your weight category at all. In fact, it was getting so sophisticated, their uh, time-based separation, that uh, they needed to know not only your aircraft type, but your subset, so the 74, 200, 300, 400, et cetera. Um, you know, same for the Airbuses, uh, 300 or 600. And uh, they were going to refine them even more. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of it depends upon uh, your actual landing weight. And they were going to start introducing that factor in so that they could finesse the weight turbulence required uh, to a really fine degree. And I, I think it is it is the future because, uh, quite honestly, the broadband weight categories are pretty crude way uh, of separating aircraft, as is the distance. I mean, you know, they're, they're pretty crude amounts, you know, and they don't really take into account uh, the conditions uh, in the air, uh, how quickly the wake uh, uh, dissipates, uh, whether it's one of those perfect days where it will just sit and hover in front of you, mm. um, you know, or it's a, it's a day where it's perfectly safe. It'll be disrupted by... Uh, you know, mechanical turbulence of the air, uh, all these factors. And um, Adam, of course, who's one of the great friends of the show, uh, is um, very closely associated with the development of uh, That's this why I'm suspicious about that whole system. Um, um... <laughs> what, because Adam's in charge? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a very clever. Have you it's a clever seen how system. he dresses? <laughs> I know. <laughs> hey, very natty dresser. He's I don't know natty. where he gets the yes. money for all those waistcoats. He has. I don't know. And he's and yeah. they got a couple of Teslas. Uh, yeah, I know yeah. that too. Hmm. hmm, makes you think, huh? It does. The good life yes. in ATC. <laughs> it must be. <laughs> I mean, we're all clearly in the wrong profession, <laughs> myself included. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, it's a it's a very clever, uh, smart system developed in the UK and at, at Heathrow, I guess. Um, and I I would suspect that that's the kind of thing that we're going to start seeing everywhere in the world um, at some point. I think it's particularly at airports where it makes financial sense to introduce it, where yeah. you're close to maximum capacity and you just want to make it safer and more efficient to feed those aircraft in. One of the things that we always joked around about, we, we are, uh, somebody was asking in the chat room, Neil, I believe. Um, so what, what exactly about the 757, you know, made it throw out such a larger wake based on, ugly. Huh? No, it's, a, what are you, it's oh, one of the most beautiful wait. airplanes out there. Nick. Oh, oh, <laughs> I think it must way. have, um, uh, have your, used to jump out of the way. <laughs> no, you're, you're thinking of an airbus here, but uh. <laughs> a higher wing loading, I think is what, what uh, caused that to happen. Uh, but we always joke around because it used to be, we'd always used to have like extra spacing behind 757s and now, you know, we're getting clear for takeoff when a 757 is still on the runway ahead of us. I'm thinking, well, I guess they don't produce any more wake like they used to. <laughs> no, no, that was, you know, was, years that ago. Was, that was before. That was before. Yeah, no no now, one crashed for ages now, so yeah, you fine. up again. <laughs> anyway, okay. Well, that was a, that was a great uh, feedback and a great question. And guess what time it is? It is time for us to end the show. Oh, no, wait. No, that's not it. <laughs> Almost. Uh, it is now time for this week's installment of the Plain Tales. 
And uh, this is a great uh, four-part, I believe you said, Nick, um, interview. That's thing. right. Yep. And this is uh, part number two of the four-part series of uh, uh, Ian Palmer. Here we go. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, the Ian Palmer Interviews, Part 2. Thanks very much indeed for coming and speaking to us again, Ian, in this, uh, that is Part 2 of what I suspect will be uh, four parts of uh, your interview. We left the last uh, story uh, at the point at which you were going to move into civil aviation. How did you achieve that? Well, I was quite obviously very focused on what I wanted to do regarding flying. And I kind of knew the ultimate aim where I'd like to get to. And that was that image was the image of sitting on the seat of the Boeing 747 as we went off to um, Boston. So that was the ultimate aim. And speaking to my friend who was the, uh, the captain on that flight, we were discussing flying schools which was the best option. And I think around that time, we decided that to go on an integrated course of training possibly would have been, it was rather, the the, the best course of action. So we um, spoke about it and I decided at that point that British Aerospace Flight Training in Hareth would be uh, where my future lay as far as um, flight training. So I uh, went to um, Hareth. They'd just started in Hareth, actually. The school previously was in Presswick, and I was one of the first courses there. And this was during a time where they switched to the uh, JAR requirements uh, from the CAA. Whereabouts is this uh, flying school? This is in Hareth in southwest Spain. Oh, Spain. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, which is a beautiful climate for, for flying, mm. of course. So I think the, pro- the the problems they had was get, getting guys finished um, through the tr- course of training in Presswick because the weather in Scotland, because the weather was so poor. So they moved everything down to Harath in southwest Spain. And uh, that's where I started. And, you know, I was basically... Um, under underconfident when it came to flying at that point and didn't realize that I could actually do it because I and achieve what I wanted to achieve I was with guys there who had been to um, Trinity College in Dublin these guys uh, one of the one of the guys on my course was doing a degree in aeronautical engineering was simultaneously doing his ATPL exams um, super 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 bright guy and this was a total sounds like a bit of an overachiever a little bit that way yeah there were a few of the guys there were it's very competitive and there were 17 people on the course when I joined or wanted to be pilots and five of us graduated Um, so they either got chopped or they were decided themselves this is not what I can do so it was quite challenging. Um, so I would basically no education at the time, although that being said, I did sort of go back and go to school before we went there in order to prepare and get my head around what, what was to be expected of me. Um, I eventually did graduate from British Aerospace, but my timing, and being a drummer, of course, you'd expect it to be pretty good. My timing was not quite so good because September the 11th, 2001 had happened as we were doing our final 
set of exams. So we all came out of this last exam, and I remember it was a human performance and limitations exam, you know, one of the ones which everyone assumed at the time was one of the easier exams, and we were really happy, great, to walk into the TV room to see the events of 9-11 unfolding, and it very quickly dawned on us that oh, maybe we're not going to get a job after that had happened there was a massive downturn in the aviation sector so well it was uh, let me ask you was uh, the flying school linked to an airline or were you doing this and then just throwing yourself onto the open market no, my dad was really support my parents were really supportive so i was self-funded through the through the course so you're self-funded yeah. and uh, wow no. and so you really needed to queue up with all the other pilots yeah. and hopefully get a job somewhere and now there were none to be had and you know and i think a lot of us now it's you will maybe relate nick um you know we have people who contact us about how did you get into the airline world what did you do in order to get your first job and i don't think any two people have the same course actually everyone has a different slightly different path as to how it works out so my path was that i decided to become a flying instructor so i was a flying oh, at the same school no sorry no this was in um, wolverhampton at a place called um, hapney green a lovely quaint little fly a little, little airfield which was fantastic for uh, the early days of learning to basically be the captain of your own light aircraft and these were some of the happiest days i think of my 20 years of flying because you know i graduated from british aerospace in 2001 and very quickly then did the instructor's rating and i was flying a pa-28 and i remember now actually having all of these people come along the public to do these what they call trial lessons so we'd take off and the great thing about um Hapley Green Airport is that if you fly to the south, if you turn left and you see some big houses, well, it stands a good chance you're probably in Birmingham's controlled airspace. <laughs> but if you turn right, uh, if you turn right, well, you can't go wrong because you're straight over Shropshire and towards Wales. So where it's the uh, open FIR, so you can really do whatever you want to do, which was great for me um, and for doing, the, for doing the instructing and uh, for, for the students. So I used to remember, I used to take the guys when they used to come for their induction or their trial lesson um, straight out and fly down the river seven and see if i could get them to find worcester excellent and then we'd fly overhead worcester and fly back but that was great experience but i realized very quickly that you know there's it was a great stepping stone but i wondered how i would get to the next level with it and what i did was uh, or what rather what the flying school decided to do was they wanted to get into corporate aviation which was something of course which i never really considered but i you know i thought well thank you very much we'll go along with this and i went to italy to learn to fly the piaggio 180 which is a fantastic uh, corporate aeroplane it's a pusher propeller it's got these Pratt & Whitney PT6 engines uh, but it's a super high performance turbo a, a single engine no it's a, it's a twin engine aircraft. so uh, one at the front one at the back no so it's got a, so it's a mid-wing yeah so the uh, PT6 is attached to the wing and, but they were it's a pusher propeller oh, so the propeller was at the back yeah. Uh, but it also had what they call a forward wing, which it wasn't a control surface. So it's, it's not a canard as uh, maybe some of the military aircraft would have had. So this was just a forward wing. Um, but it was great because for the passengers, and it would take sort of six people in the passenger cabin, but they could stand up in this wow. uh, aeroplane, which was great because it was a, a mid-wing and a wing was at the back with the forward wing obviously at the front. So um, 
So that was a great experience. So I'd go, and unlike the aviation, or sorry, the airline industry, where you would have your very much a set roster in that sector, you were of corporate aviation, you would, um, and I was flying for um, a company called Fox Air. Um, so what happened basically was the flying school decided that they were going to get this aeroplane. They sent uh, four of us off to Piaggio to do the type rating. I was really serious about wanting to you know get this type rating and get through the course and the other guys maybe weren't quite so serious so they didn't um, didn't achieve very much but um, the flying school subsequently didn't end up taking an aeroplane however I was offered a job with Piaggio at the factory, which was amazing. Oh, wow. They must have recognized some talent there. Well, they were really nice people, but I really, (laughs) I worked hard. I worked really hard for that. Good for you. Good for you. So I remember now, and uh, you'll probably relate to this, Nick, that there was a lot of ex-Air Force or Italian Air Force pilots within that organization. And the chief pilot, whose name was Giuliano Corrado, uh, he was an ex-104 Starfighter pilot. Oh, the uh, Widowmaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah, some of the other guys um, who were involved with the sort of production and the, and the testing of the aircraft were ex-Italian uh, Air Force Tornado pilots. Oh, excellent. So they were an interesting bunch. I bet. Um, yeah, so that was a really good experience. So I mean, there you would literally go on a tour so you would take off from uh, where we were Geneva um, and Bologna were the two bases and we'd take off and we wouldn't know where we'd end up we used to go I remember we used to fly the uh, Ferrari Formula One people around so at the time it was oh wow uh, did you meet anybody interesting yeah I did I flew um, Jean Tolt uh, who was at that time the team manager excellent so um, uh, Baricello and Schumacher were the drivers when I was there so that was you met them both Yes, oh, fabulous. I know you're not really meant to dive, divulge that now, but it's a long time ago. So yeah, I'm happy to say that's what we, that's what we did. What was Shuey like? He was um, he was very 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 lovely, but very quiet, um, but very studious and a real um, a real thinker. Um, and at the time, I remember he was doing a degree, I think, in some sort of automotive engineering. Um, so he was had a big say in wow. the design of the car and um, stuff, which is where above my head. And I do remember him saying, actually, if I can uh, work on the design of the car with the with Ferrari and I can just get even a 0.0001% improvement in the performance of the car, then that makes a big difference in his world. So they're really dealing with it. Golly. I mean, anybody, you know, I'm impressed with anybody that's any good at anything, you know, and he really was top of his game. So really quite inspiring. So where, where from there? So I went, I realized then having spoken to my friend who I went on the, the jump seat on the 747 with, he said, Ian, you know, you need to get yourself into an airline. That's all you need to be doing. You know, he didn't really understand the corporate world and I must admit it's something which had never occurred to me, but it was very enjoyable and it was a great experience. But um, from there, I joined a company uh, called Now Airlines and they were based in Luton and they had a very short existence. Um, they made a couple of, um, I think I think you probably agree, schoolboy errors in that they were setting up as a low-cost airline from Luton and they decided to lease two 737s from EasyJet. <laughs> so, of course, yeah, you know... How's that going to work? Yeah, exactly. So they never, they never saw the airplanes. That whole thing just folded without even getting airborne. Um, but however, that being said, um, 
we got, we all went to a company called Globespan. They took us all en masse, which was a company based in Scotland. And I did some of the first flights oh. for that company on the um, the Boeing 737 there, the Boeing 737 300s they had initially. Then they had some Boeing 737s, 800s directly from the manufacturer. And that was great, doing the base training around uh, the UK, just taking myself and uh, a training captain, took this aeroplane out for the day, going around to a few airfields. I think we went around to Presswick and down to Doncaster and back around just doing the sectors. And it was really good fun. Um, I was going to say, uh, that sounds like an absolute jolly. Well, it was. It was. It was. You know, you'd, you'd park up somewhere, go for a cup of tea and a sticky bun and uh, <laughs> jump back in your airplane, a bit like the days you did with the Cessna 152 and, and all of that stuff. So, so that was a great experience. And then they also had some an interesting aeroplane, actually, a Boeing 737-600, which was the new generation aircraft, but it was a very short aeroplane. Now, the problem with this aeroplane was that it had a toilet at the very back of the aeroplane, no toilet at the front. So, you know, they always say, drink lots of water. And I remember, so I drank lots of water like a good boy. Now, I remember always waiting for the passengers to get off as soon as you'd landed because you were just bursting to go to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a, a, bit of a bit of a trudge to the back. So I always remember that. But um, So that was a nice little... Um, a uh, nice little aeroplane, actually, a little 737. But I think the 737-300 was probably my favourite of the 737s to fly. It was really well balanced. It was a really lovely, lovely aircraft. The, I always thought the 737-800 was quite twitchy in roll. And then the 737-600, being a shorter fuselage, was quite twitchy in um, pitch. Always took quite a lot of trimming for each um, power change. Interesting, isn't it? Um, so they flew mm. quite differently, but I, th- I guess they're all on the same type certificate. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they're all the, um, a single type rating. Um, and it was just the NG differences, basically, that you would do. But um, hey, it seems a long while ago now, because of course, I'm a, a proper Airbus convert. <laughs> so having that control column is very different to obviously having the side stick. And I remember at the time, how would I get on flying with a side stick? But um, yeah, it's quite, as you know, it's quite second nature very, very quickly, isn't it? And it's great for long haul, that's for sure. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. So uh, was that airline going for a while? Did you uh, stick with them? I, I did, but um, I had an experience, and that was that um, I was still quite fond of the alcohol. And I was in a bar one night in uh, Glasgow with my uh, contemporaries, my colleagues, and I had a phone call. And my father was on the other end of the phone, and he said um, he was very upset and said, uh, uh, Son, um, your brother has been in a car accident, and I don't think he's going to make it. And uh, I sort of realized that emotionally and personally, there was maybe some sort of issue then because I, and it's really quite sad to say this now, but I didn't feel anything. I was happy to keep drinking. I didn't have any feelings or anything, any sort of, it was really strange. Um, But what? So you didn't feel concern or worry or no not at all and I said to my friends who I was with oh that was my dad who just said my brother's been in a car accident and he said he doesn't think he's going to make it and I was like well who's going to get the next beer and it was really weird my friends were there with like their jaws on the floor and it was awful the um the person that I turned into um, around that time and then all would start to unravel and I'd start to realize eventually what actually was was going on so this kind of was a 
moment of realization mm. for you. How were your relationships with your work colleagues going and everything like that? Well, I was definitely um, Mr. Party Central, that's for sure. I mean, one thing I will say, and it was something which really does need to be mentioned, and that is that never at any point would I be on an aircraft uh, unable to function. Sure. But I certainly spent a lot of my time off the aircraft enjoying myself and of course with the condition this condition gets worse and never better that's very interesting did, you, did your brother make it first of all did yeah well he was in a coma for 13 days and what happened was he pulled up to negotiate across a dual carriageway and a car bashed into him from behind he had the the wheel turned the steering wheel turned so he then went into the dual carriageway into the line of oncoming traffic and a car then hit the side the passenger side of his car at about 60 miles an hour and pushed the a-frame of the car his car into his head so he had epilepsy and all sorts oh good lord and he was um yeah it was you know so so lucky and this was sort of the early 2000s this happened 2006 around there um yeah, pretty horrific. <laughs> so I just see him so grateful that he made it. Uh, but of course, you know, he does suffer with epilepsy now and does suffer the emotional effects afterwards. And um, at that time, that really affected my parents. And my parents then, uh, they were both diagnosed very quickly with cancer. So around that time, I decided to leave Globespan and I applied for another job in my hometown, Birmingham. Uh, so I worked for Monarch Airlines and I did the convert, type conversion in uh, to fly the Airbus A320, but mainly the A321 actually in Monarch in Birmingham, um, which was a new experience. But, you know, as I said at the start of the interview, I never... The problem is you can, you can do all the geographicals. I can go to Scotland, I can go to Birmingham, but ultimately the problem will always be between my two ears. I'll always carry the problem with me. Or this, yeah, it is a problem, it's a condition. Um, so I was working for Monarch and even then, you know, struggling to contain, you know, that lifestyle. Had you recognised mm. the fact that you were an alcoholic at that point? I since realised that I was an alcoholic, uh, I was born alcoholic, and there's a couple of indications, and I truly believe this, um, and it's a condition for life, but it is a condition. It's a little bit like diabetes, that we can control it, but we can't cure it. That's a very good analogy, and one that I considered myself. You're at a real uh, turning point in your life here. Um, you're back drinking, uh, you're holding down an airline job, um, but you obviously need to change your life somehow. And I think we'll be able to talk about that at length uh, next week, mm, if that's so okay. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, that's a great show. All right, mate. Chat to you next week. Brilliant. See you then. I love this music. <laughs> what you said, uh, you're not... It's yeah, tough. it's amazing that it was made for a game, right? No, you were sorry. I was saying, I was amazed. Yeah, it was. It was made for a Tomb Raider game. Oh, okay. Uh, that was quite remarkable. Wow, this is a um, really fascinating yeah, I never uh, said, interview. Said what? I'm sorry. It looks like we're yeah, like completely um, out of sync. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, 
Uh, Nev has just said what uh, I was going to say and uh, how touching uh, that Ian is able to be so candid in this mm -hmm. uh, series. Now, uh, Nev has the video version of this, which he will be playing in um, PT UK uh, later in the year. But uh, uh, so you can see this again if you don't catch it right now. But uh, um, we, we've covered the build up towards what is going to be a very serious time in uh, Ian's life. And um, again, I, I just applaud him for being open enough. And he is a current working airline pilot. So this is something he does uh, in full awareness of what people might think of him. But he is uh, a recovered, stroke recovering. I don't think an alcoholic ever admits to being completely recovered. It is a continual process. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he is unbelievably honest about it. And uh, we, we'll find out lots more uh, next week. Well managed, I guess you can say, right? I tell you what, he's got, he's got my respect. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, it's one of the reasons I like him so much because, he, you know, from the moment I flew with him, he was just so open and honest about his life and what he'd done and uh, what he'd done to stabilize and make himself uh, a person who we can now admire rather than someone who we might have, um, you know, just just uh, you know, turned away from. In, just was, yeah. Yeah. And I can really, I can really see how the how being so open and honest keeps yourself honest in the absolutely process. that's exactly what i was going to say it just mm -hmm. keeps 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 you honest yeah. first and foremost and then you go from there it's just mm -hmm. absolutely great wow absolutely so the the next one's the next one is the cruncher so do, nice. do listen to that one it's worth worth it if, if there's any reason to come back and listen to APG again, I know many of you are wondering. Mm, I don't know. This, this, this was it for 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 most everybody, but yeah. uh, they're they're going to give next uh, next episode a try. Yes, just because of this cliffhanger. So, thank you very much, Nick, for saving the APG. <laughs> Nick, come through in the clutch. Yes, he does. Well, it, don't don't really... remind them that they can listen to it separately. Aside, from this <laughs> that's very true. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, Steph, we wouldn't say anything like that. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought we were being open and honest about things. Yeah. <laughs> well, Not that that, that oh, works. That works for My Ian, bad. but it doesn't work for us. <laughs> I'm sorry. Take it back. Yeah. All right. Uh, very good. I can't wait until uh, next week's installment. Yeah. Yeah. Part three. It's a good one. All right. Uh, let's see. We'll move back into the feedback notebook here and uh, attack number nine. Attack! Greetings, Captain Jeff and ABG crew. Well, you answered a question I had when you read the story about the flight of B-52s flying around Louisiana. I saw those planes, the pair of bombers and their F-15 escorts flying in wide circles around the area and thought, I wonder what they're doing. Now I know. They, uh, those must have been the flying salute planes. Now, jumping tracks, I've discovered uh, on YouTube uh, a channel called Mega Projects. It deals with a whole range of engineering subjects, but I recently, but it recently posted a two-part series on Concorde and Concordsky, officially the TU-144. I've seen a few videos about this uh, one. Ha uh, I've seen a few videos about this. 
comma. But this one had a couple of interesting tidbits that I hadn't heard of before, such as the Soviets attempting to get samples of Concorde's tire rubber and the counterintelligence response to that. Honestly, you could probably make an entire spy movie just about these two planes. Always enjoy the best of the show. Best wishes with whatever your new wings wind up being. This is the Texas and LaShock signing off. Hmm. You know, that the story about the Concorde and Konkorsky, that kind of sounds familiar. Maybe we should do, maybe, Nick, maybe you should do a plain tale about this. Oh, damn. Yeah, if only I had and called it Charger and put it in the plain tales uh, about 100 back, then people could have listened to it. Yeah. Oh, wait, you did. <laughs> Even about the uh, the bit of disinformation they did uh, concerning the, the rubber compound, mm-hmm. apparently the uh, formula that they gave to the Russians would have produced something akin to uh, bubble gum. Would have been interesting. Silly putty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was something about the the way the uh, the wing root, or uh, I'm not that's not the right term. The uh, the way the wing went from the fuselage and then kind of formed a, a, an unusual pattern, and uh, they were trying to figure out how to how to recreate that as well. But they did something to throw them off. I don't know. Uh, that that I'm not too. Oh, sure maybe that's about. just in my own mind then. <laughs> I think that's that's part of the uh, the, the there was it was a significant spiring uh, going mm. on in the uh, European aviation industry. The Russians had a number of agents in place, and they leaked secrets about uh, a variety of aircraft. Um, but uh, certainly, uh, the, what you're talking about is the Ramshorn Vortex, that the uh, the shape of the Concorde's wing mm-hmm. was able to produce. And uh, it was a, a, a vortex of low pressure that formed at high angle of attack over the leading edge of the upper surface of the wing, which allowed this aircraft that really was designed had a very, very thin wing and designed to cruise at Mach 2. Uh, the way it got back to a landing speed was the fact as the angle of attack built, so this Ramshorn vortex uh, grew, and so it gave an aerodynamic uh, lift device, as if you know, as it were, uh, that allowed it, allowed it to come back to a normal approach speed. Uh, it needed a very high nose angle, hence the enormous droop that mm. uh, both uh, the TU one four four and Concorde had, and various other high supersonic aircraft. But considering they did all this without the aid of uh, computer design, I, I find remarkable. It is. This, oh, was, this was the days of blokes with, with um, you know, drawing boards, slide <laughs> designers, pens, pencils. And abacus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I think yeah. fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Great admiration for those engineers yeah. and aerodynamicists. APG 299, that was the show where uh, that plane tail Oh, the one before 300. Yes. That was a great show, though, in Atlanta. Yeah, that was a good time. Mm -hmm. Definitely. All right. Item 10. Oh, Liz actually says she has a spreadsheet of all the plane tales. Oh, she does. She's a spreadsheet ninja. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. She has a spreadsheet of all the mistakes I've made since she's been producer director (laughs) with us. 
It's a very long <laughs> document. <laughs> All right. Item 10. Uh, Mark, classic example of the ignorance of news media. Hello, Jeff. Hope all's well with you and the APG crew. Oh, wait. You guys already practice social distancing as standard operating procedure for every episode you record. Anyway, I just wanted to pass along. That's the way I've, I've been kind of employing social distancing from almost everybody in my life for quite a number of years. So this is like <laughs> normal for me. <laughs> Lots of practice. Anyway, just wanted to pass along another frustrating example. Another, he says, frustrating example of how wrong news media gets it when it comes to aviation stories. This was on my Facebook timeline today. And then he has a picture of a jet and it says F-16 flyover Kenosha today. Uh, wings over Wisconsin, F-16 fighter jets to honor healthcare heroes with flyover. Now this F-16 apparently is a, a special model. It's, uh, yeah. has twin vertical, um, uh, stabilizers yeah. and two, two engines. Two, oh, yeah. wow. The two engine twin fin F-16. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is an F-15. Oh, and it's got twin intakes either side of the cockpit. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's F-15, yeah, F-16, F-16, F-15. 84. I mean, the five and the six are right next to each other on the yeah. keyboard. Can you That's blame true. them? Mm. That might be a typo. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not a typo. <laughs> I wrote back to Mark and I said, oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Uh, wrong color? <laughs> gray, gray, noisy thing. Yeah. <laughs> As Captain Al would say. Anyway, so Mark says, blue skies. Mark, fillet, altergot, or fillet, if you prefer. Item 11, Tom. This is good. Hello, Jeff and crew. Welcome back, Rick. I hope you are all keeping safe and well. Apologies, I'm a bit behind on episodes. Less driving means less time to listen, so I hope this email arrives on time. Before I get started, this isn't intended to be read out on the show. Yeah, unless you feel it would be useful to other listeners. Obviously, we did. Um, but if you could forward this on to the listener in question, I would be grateful and hope in some way it helps. Uh, I was listening to episode 419 when some feedback from Sissy regarding her son Mike's reluctance to take the next step from PPL to commercial training caught my attention. During the feedback, there was mention of a $40,000 interest-free loan to be repaid within three years as if it was a great opportunity. At this stage, I found myself screaming at my iPad, which is not something I do often, must be a symptom of prolonged isolation or maybe just general frustration. Being in a similar situation myself, I appreciated the advice that the crew gave. However, I do think one obvious and important point was missed. Such a big loan taken over such a relatively short time seems essentially pointless. If you honestly think you can afford to pay $13,000 a year in loan repayments, then it's surely better to not take a loan and spend that money directly on flight training or put it in a bank account where you'll be the one earning the interest. Conversely, if you can't afford to make the hefty repayments, then you definitely shouldn't take out the loan. Either way, that particular that particular opportunity doesn't seem to make sense, especially since the loan period is pretty close to the time it would take to get from this stage in your flight training to the right-hand seat anyway. My personal opinion is that a loan for flight training should not be taken out based on a projection of what you will be earning as a pilot. Nothing is guaranteed, especially in aviation. <laughs> we all know that. 
and is as is true when flying, you should always have redundancy, an escape option, a plan B, and not base all your decisions on a single possible outcome, especially when that outcome is the best case scenario. Any number of things can knock you off track, so plan for the worst and hope for the best. The current global situation is a perfect, perfect example of that. But for someone in the early stages of training, I would try to turn it to a positive and view it as an opportunity to be patient, sit tight, and as Captain Nick often says, light a cigarette. Things could be hugely different in three years' time. Instead of a financial noose around your neck having rushed to join the sea of pilots now looking for jobs, you could have saved the money for flight training, be debt-free, and ready to launch into a recovering job market. As someone who had the realization of wanting to be a pilot relatively late, I understand the perceived sense of time pressure and the impatience of wanting to push on, but don't let that rush you into making bad decisions. Don't get me wrong, I'm not against loans altogether, and there are there are situations where they make sense. They can be a useful means of financial time travel, but they come with a risk which you need to be confident that you can spread comfortably. Hope that helps. Clear skies, tailwinds, unlimited visibility, Tom Harris. So Tom, I thought that was a very well put. Uh, good advice, yeah, I think. Very nice, although I would like to say that I don't actually promote people taking up smoking particularly uh, youngsters like Mike. So uh, it's just, you know. Well, he didn't say smoke it. Speech. He just said light it. No, just light, <laughs> light it. He just <laughs> light it and hold it there and let it, And, and you know. lighting things, setting light to things on the flight deck is never a good oh, idea in my opinion. Either. <laughs> I'll fly with a few of those. <laughs> what, flamers? Yeah. Poker? Flamers? <laughs> I, remember, I remember in, uh, in uh, Acme South, actually, the brand new FOs must have been, I don't know, 2003 or something. And this guy, this 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 guy, he'd been around since the days of the DC three. He was on his way out, and um, he asked me if, uh, if if I minded if he if he lit up a cigarette. And you know, this is the like the director of operations. I'm like, well, what am I tell him? No. <laughs> yeah, I mind. <laughs> yeah, I do mind. <laughs> so it's, it's funny. He uh, he had one of the uh, one of the flight attendants um, bring him one of the uh, a few of those uh, those towels there, those those hot towels for the passengers, and he's. He's, you know, stuffed the towels under the, 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 the cockpit door, you know, the, the crack of the door uh, there. And uh, yeah, I just lit away. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, don't, don't light up in the flight deck, please. Yeah. You know, that was one of those things that was kind of astonishing to me when I first started flying for Acme back in the late eighties, um, smoking was still allowed on, mm. on airplanes. And, you know, when all of a sudden you start smelling a cigarette, you're going, what is that? What's that? Oh, captain smoking. Wow. That's <laughs> weird. Very, very strange. I mean, it's just, it's becoming less and less common. So it always strikes me as odd now when I actually do see someone smoking an actual cigarette too, and not like just vaping. Um, there was a lady in front of me uh, in the drive-thru line to get breakfast this morning who was smoking and she was looking oh. back at her, in her rear view or in her uh, side view mirror. And I think we kind of locked eyes for a second. I just was like <laughs> the disappointed, <laughs> you know, shake of my head and it definitely got her attention, but she didn't, she didn't quit smoking. Was that that Steph's uh, patented, bless your heart, look. Yeah, it, it was my patented look of disapproval. And yeah. you were actually closer than you may have appeared, so. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it's right there. Did Bam. Rim shot. Uh, here it is. A little bit late, but yeah. deserved nonetheless. It works. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on? Yes. Sure. I think I think it's time. It's it's not it's not me. 
It's you. <laughs> Ahmad sends us some feedback. Hello, APG, or is this time I'm sending my feedback in text form? Because, well, I'm at it again. That mind of mine is again wondering. Wondering what? Wondering about the minimum speed needed for lift generation of wings. I hope the Wikipedia is available to help out with this one. Yes, we Uh-oh. do have the Wikipedia present today. Uh, let's see. Uh, is an aircraft's stall speed also equal to its unstick speed? The speed on the ground just above rotate at which the airflow around the wings is sufficient to uh, generate the minimum amount of lift for the aircraft to get airborne? For instance, if an aircraft can start rotation to anywhere between 5 degrees to 7 degrees nose up at 90 knots indicated, but won't unstick or leave the ground until it attains a speed of 110, uh, does this mean that if it is airborne, say, anywhere between 1,000 to 5,000 feet, it will stall clean if its speed drops to 110 knots indicated airspeed? My mind is split between this assumption and the assumption of, no, it won't, because during takeoff, the flap setting is always lesser than the flap setting required during landing, and therefore, the clean stall speed, full flaps and gear down, would have to be less than 110 knots indicated, perhaps something like 90 or something between 90 knots and 110. This would be due to the lesser flap setting for takeoff generating less lift, but the le- I'm about to play the crickets for myself, actually. Right yeah, here. really? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but the least amount of drag possible compared with a greater flap setting for landing, which generates way more lift, but also way more drag than desired. <laughs> Sorry, Rick. I know you're not able to follow along with this because you don't have access to this this uh, notebook at this moment. Uh, so uh, I can reread anything that you need me to. But anyway, that's his. That's I think you get the gist of his question. Yeah, I, I get the gist of it. And I think okay. I mean, I mean, well, we know that if you double you double lift, you quadruple drag, right? So um, velocity minimum unstick. Are you stalled there out? I would say no. I say there's a, like a some kind of a margin above stall yeah. at that point. I just don't remember yeah, exactly what it is. Because remember, all reference speeds for for both big airplanes and small airplanes are based is based on one point three times VSO for takeoff landing or, or or VSI. So it's 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 I'd say you're not stalled. I, I I don't I don't think what's what's your what's your take on it? Because I mean, obviously, center of lift is 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 the, the wing is producing lift, which is why you're unsticking. Mm-hmm. Right. So obviously you have you there. There's there's that there's that flow over the over the uh, uh, upper side of the wing, producing that differential pressure between the top and the bottom, which is allowing you to unstick. So if you were stalled, you wouldn't unstick. It's kind of how I I'm, I'm I'm looking at it here. Yeah, I know that there's some kind of a safety buffer there because you know let's say you rotate and you lift off and then all of a sudden you get a, a sudden gust and or drop mm-hmm. in speed, then, you know, it, there's gotta be a buffer there to keep you from just stalling at that point and coming back down. Um, St- Dr. Steph, uh, I think she uh, has a master's in uh, aerodynamics. Um, so what, what would you say? <laughs> um, no, I don't. Um, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I, I, um, 
I will admit, as long as we're admitting things on this show, I think that's been a theme. I took a physics class that was not calculus-based, so it was a little bit lighter on the uh, Ooh, that sounds like my kind of physics course. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, you can take a physics class that's not calculus-based? Yes, I would like that. It's like color inside uh, the lines. So that was basically Basically. It. Basically. It was like, we're going to do some practical experiments and show you how physics works and don't have to explain it in great detail. Um so I, I'm just trying to make sure I really understand what Ahmad's question actually is here, because I think that's where we're all getting a little bit um, uncertain. So he's basically asking, you know, you start rotation at a certain airspeed, so your VR speed. Um, but obviously the main gear isn't going to lift off right in that moment. You know, you're going to travel just a little bit further, have a little bit more speed before that happens. So I I agree with you guys. I think there's going to be a buffer there. Um, so w when you come unstuck from the, the ground, that's not your stall speed. Um, and it also de does depend on your configuration of the aircraft. So like he mentions, you know, um, he's saying clean stall speed, but I think he's actually meaning um, configured versus clean. Yeah. Um, so certainly if your gear up, uh, flaps up, it's going to be a different speed than full flaps gear down. And all that'll be taken into account. But, you know, you're, you're when you're stalling, you're still stalling for good, Nick. <laughs> oh, I was just putting my hand up for Jeff to pick me next. Me, I was, oh. was going to say, uh, I was going to transition or say. I was hoping you were going to refute something that I was saying. No, 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 definitely not. Okay. Um, so, and then the other, oh, I was going to say something else there, but now I've forgotten. I'm sorry. That was going to be uh, awesome. It was going to be great. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Go to Nick. It'll come back to me. So I was going to say, and my, and my transition to Nick is that I've heard Nick say things like he really knew what he was talking about in previous episodes. And I think this might be another time where he's going to do that. Well, I, I, what I am going to say is, no, it's not the same speed. Um, there are too many factors here uh, that will adjust things. Now, let's assume you configure the aircraft uh, while you're flying around in the same way you would for takeoff and then um, do a power on stall. And that's another problem. You've got a power on instead of power off. Uh, which is actually quite hard to achieve because if you're doing a full power on stall, uh, the aircraft won't stall. You can't slow the damn thing down. So how do you actually simulate the same conditions you're at takeoff? Uh, it doesn't work um, because uh, you, you, it's very hard to get the aircraft uh, You can do it enough. in a light aircraft. Uh, power on and takeoff configuration, um, full power, and you still slow the airplane down without climbing. Flight instructors so, help so, me out so here. The thing with the thing here with, yeah. with VMU really is that you're you're basically balancing. You're you're right there at the cusp between the total drag produced. By I'm going to say drag's got nothing to do with this. I'm going to say it's all about lift. So let's assume you can overcome drag with thrust. Otherwise, the airplane wouldn't take off. Well, and, yeah, and um, that's, also that's, you that's get, where I was going. That's where I was yeah. going. Okay, yeah, no, so that's, so that's, that's the balance there. Well, that's my next point. If someone will let me finish, <laughs> uh, when you're taking off, you're right there in ground effect. So you can get airborne and fly actually below the stalling speed of the aircraft in ground effect. And we've seen it happen in a number of crashes mm -hmm. where you see people wallowing along. Uh, they're actually below the aircraft stalling speed, but ground effects helping to keep them airborne. You take it up a bit out of ground effect, and the airplane would effectively have been stalled. And the other factor is that we would consider for an airplane like an airliner is 
your stalling angle may be much greater than you can achieve uh, when you're on the runway and you're trying to unstick because you're limited by your pitch angle at that point. Whereas you get clear of the ground into clear airspace, you can pitch the aircraft much higher and get the airspeed a lot lower because there's no risk of banging your backside on the ground. So you can get the aircraft slower. And there's a lot of factors like that. Yeah, Sorry, but I mean, critical angle of attack is going to be the same whether you know you're on the ground i mean yeah but you can't achieve the critical angle oh, exactly you're Cause, cause, cause you have, you have five to seven down. degrees exactly mm-hmm. yeah that was a dana yeah what were you, you were saying something there too yeah i, I mean ground effect in in ground effect obviously as nick mentioned the um stall speed is you know you're well below stall speed because you're parasitic drag and basically the 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 distance half distance of the wing to the ground almost acts like a cushion so it's very easy to rotate the aircraft prematurely and 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 get into a stall Uh, but at that point you are unstuck so um the other thing i was going to say dr steph is in theory you may be able to do what you're talking about but you'd be Mm -hmm. you'd be dragging the ever-living crap out of the tail oh well sure if you're not if you're on the ground still yeah yeah you know you can you can actually find your i was thinking about practice uh, yes oh yes i've i've had a piper arrow Mm -hmm. i've had a piper arrow which is a high performance single engine retractable landing gear airplane in the northeast in the wintertime flying backwards it can absolutely be done because all you do is put your nose into the wind. As long as that uh, wind is is greater than your stall speed, you can sit there and go into MCA, minimal control airspeed, and just sit there and hover and fly backwards. So I absolutely agree with you. Well, I've made the Phantom fly backwards. You point it straight up in the air, and then you close the throttles, and eventually it flies back. <laughs> That's just falling. Nick. That's falling. That's, That's a very big difference. <laughs> yeah, but it's falling backwards. No, that's falling down. Sliding. We call that sliding. That's sliding. For a number of years now, work has been proceeding in order to bring perfection to the crudely conceived idea of a transmission that would not only supply inverse reactive current for use in unilateral phase detractors, but would also be capable of automatically synchronizing cardinal grammeters. That's what I have to say. Exactly. (laughs) I'm sure I, I can find exactly. that very revealing. <laughs> I mean, all what? right. So then, in answer to Akma's question, stall speed. I, I agree. With, I agree with the panel. Is, is that it does not equal the unstick speed? No. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's generally lower than unstick speed. Yeah. yeah. All fine. right. And you know, Akma had a really good way to demonstrate that is exactly what I was talking about. MCA. Minimum controllable airspeed. You can get the, like a Piper Warrior, you can get down to 45, 50 knots and just sit there and sit right on the, the stall warning and just the airplane will buff it. will continue to fly. So that gives you an idea that, all right, so when you're rotating a Warrior, which is usually 75 to 80 knots, pulling it off the runway, uh, in your, you know, that's your on stick speed, right? That's kind of like your V1. Um, and and that's when you are pulling the airplane off the ground. Actually, VR, I'm sorry. Uh, V1's decision speed, VR. So your stall speed is well behind you, um, even with the uh, taking into ground effect into consideration when you're unsticking. 
Perfect. Yeah, ground effect. Yeah, I was I was reading his question because I just got access to the notebook here. Uh, ground effect is as as Nick was saying, ground effect is huge here because yeah uh, yeah because you know basically ground effect is takes into account the uh, the parasite drag. So parasite drag has to do with the as you increase your angle of attack, your parasite drag vector increases because as we said, an increase in lift also produces an increase in drag. As we say, you double drag, uh, you double lift, you quadruple drag. So while in ground effect, um, you're you're right in that cushion of air inside of uh, of one half uh, wingspan. Uh, that the overall drag due to that ground effect is lower, uh, which is why once you get out of that ground effect, as Nick was saying, you know, airplanes might be able to get off the ground and kind of kind of waddle around in ground effect. Once you get out of ground effect, um, you lose that. And so the, 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 the drag factor now is, is, is higher, which eventually will bring you back down. So, so, um, I, I agree with the consensus here, but with to, to the answer that we all uh, reached here. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. How many pilots does it take to explain? <laughs> yeah, really. All speed. <laughs> but see, that, that this is good stuff, though, because you you, you don't think about stuff like this. There's you know? a reason why we don't think about it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Such an instrument is the turbo and <laughs> Now, basically, the only new principle involved is the... Okay. This yeah, has been man. fascinating. My abs hurt from laughing. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> All right. Well, that'll teach you, Ahmad, for sending in a question like that. All right. Very, very unsticky question. All right. How about some more audio feedback? What do you think? Sure. This from South Africa. Save us, Mike. Yes. Greetings, Captains Jeff, Nick, Rick, and Dana, and to Dr. Steph. Mike here from Johannesburg, South Africa. I've been listening to the APG since around episode 190, and I would say that there is little doubt that I meet the CDC criteria for the diagnosis of the APG syndrome. Unfortunately, go around a cylinder has not yet been licensed by our version of the FDA, and as a result, I remain afflicted. Currently, we are sitting in the midst of one of the most draconian lockdowns in the world. We cannot buy cigarettes, not that I smoke, mind you, or alcohol, which is somewhat problematic, and this has been in effect since the 26th of March. As I leave this feedback, it is the 15th of May. We've been confined to our houses, except for essential workers, and to get food, etc., I've spent many hours running around my garden with you guys in my headset, and I'm most grateful for the distraction. Fortunately, in the last week or so, we've been allowed out to exercise between 6am and 9am, when the virus is still sleeping, I'm told. Most concerningly, however, is the total ban on aviation. I'm a 200-hour private pilot who owns and operates a very yellow aircraft factory, Sling 4. I've included a photo in the email. The Sling 4 is a South African-designed and produced four-seat aircraft with a Rotax 914 engine, very similar to the 912 that they've recently experienced in the Pipistrel. For currency and proficiency, I like to fly at least an hour a week. It's been eight weeks since I last committed any aviation, and to be honest, I have concerns about how proficient I will be when this is all over. Anyhow, the reason for the feedback was to do some tweaking, and minor tweaking, in the region of about a tenth of a percent, around the 50% accuracy rating uh, that the airline pilot guy show has after episode 424, and the discussion about masks and oxygen. I'm an anesthesiologist, and at the simplest level, my job is about nothing more than the delivery of oxygen. Firstly, with respect to cabin altitude and susceptibility to hypoxemia, 
This is a function of the altitude at which one resides. In Johannesburg, we are at 5,500 foot above mean sea level, so the difference for us between ground level and the 7 to 8,000 foot cabin altitude is not as great. Because we live at altitude, our hemoglobin has a higher affinity for oxygen at lower partial pressures of oxygen, and as a result, we can go higher before developing hypoxemia. We are acclimatized, if you will. Someone who lives at sea level will have, given similar physiological characteristics, a lower oxygen saturation at cabin altitude than someone who lives at altitude. To a large extent, this is what Dr. Steph was saying. I merely wanted to flesh it out a little. At the risk of this becoming the airline hypoxia guy show, I wanted to also weigh in on the effects of face masks on oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. Something many folk fail to appreciate about a face mask is that it doesn't actually decrease the amount of oxygen available, because oxygen and carbon dioxide are such small molecules that they easily pass through all masks. However, the effect of a face mask may be to increase the work of breathing, which can cause one to feel as though there is insufficient oxygen. This is particularly true with the respirators, the N95 and equivalent masks, and this can become an issue in patients who have underlying lung disease, where they are already working hard to breathe without the mask. Interestingly, as masks become wet from condensation or contamination, their permeability decreases and the work of breathing will increase. The mask should not lead to the rebreathing or accumulation of CO2 unless it is poorly fitting. What do I mean by this? If the mask is not tightly applied to your face, then the air that you breathe out will stay in the area of the mask. This air comes from the alveoli of the lungs and is rich in carbon dioxide. It is similar to the air which is in the trachea and airways of the lung at the end of expiration. When we then breathe in, this carbon dioxide rich air, which is admittedly a small amount, is the first air that goes to the alveoli where it cannot take on any more carbon dioxide. This is termed dead space. If your mask fits loosely and is relatively impermeable, i.e. a homemade multi-layer cloth mask or an N95 mask, this will increase the volume of dead space and cause a small accumulation of carbon dioxide in the bloodstream. Sadly though, tightly fitting masks often cause people to feel claustrophobic and as though they aren't getting enough oxygen, whereas this may not in fact be the case. Captain Nick is of course completely correct when he states that the use of a mask is not for the protection of yourself, but for the protection of the others. And this is obviously in the public setting, where the coronavirus is spread by droplets which can be stopped by conventional masks. The general public should not be wearing N95 or equivalent respirator masks because these are only for the prevention of aerosol spread of the coronavirus which is seen in certain healthcare settings and in this context are for the use of the protection of the wearer and not the surrounding people. Anyway, I hope this makes some sense and doesn't appear too pedantic. Thank you all once again for the great show and for being our companions during this difficult time. Clear skies and unlimited visibility to you all. Talons, Douglas. Talons, Douglas. Brilliant. Yes. I love that airplane. Isn't it great? It looks really yeah. smooth. Yes. It's very yellow. It is. Very it's a bit yellow. like uh, Neville's car. <laughs> hmm. Not quite that bright. The flying mm. banana. <laughs> oh, no, it's, it, isn't his orange now, not yellow? It's, it's got a bit orangey. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what? I, I didn't really catch what kind of airplane it was because he said it so quickly. Um. I wasn't familiar with it, and now I've forgotten the name of it. Yeah, terrible. I, I didn't catch either. He said it real quick with, with a strong yeah. accent. Here, let me replay the, the whole thing. Then. In, no, <laughs> don't do that. Hold on. I'm, don't do that. Talk amongst yourselves for half a second. Okay. I'm going to confirm what I think it is before I just speak with the. Okay. 
All I heard out of that whole feedback was Nick was correct. So I'm going, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> it figures. I'm good. Yeah. Nick tuned out after that. Yeah, sling. Probably I think they did say I, I sling. Got, I got below the 50%. It's a sling four. <laughs> sling, S L I N G. Okay, sling four. I was going to call it a Swift, but I think that's yeah, just I, yeah. I remember it was like yellow. it started with an S. I knew it just... started with an S. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the. He's like the steps like down the and the gear. I mean, what's wrong with him? Should I? You know, He's... we're we're talking about this like we everybody can actually see this. Perhaps. I, oh, okay. I well, they probably... could if you did some of your magic okay, misery. Okay. And for those of you who are listening to the audio only podcast, this is a small single engine, low wing. There we go. Bright yellow. Yeah. And he's flying around nice with his steps canopy. and his wheels down. Like I say, what's the matter? Come on. He forgot to raise his gear. Come on, Mike. Pull the gear <laughs> up. As we like Here's to say in the gym, we have each world down and welded. Down and welded. Gear down, always. Yep. Yeah. Down and welded. All right. So that's the a picture that's of that. That's a gum check. Pretty, pretty airplane right there. Although, it you know what? Very I, pretty, we, isn't it? This particular conversation was interesting to me, too. Um that we had back at was at 424. Um, I am going to, uh, when we go flying this, this weekend. Um, so hopefully it should be up around 14,000 feet, but not in a pressurized cabin. Mm. So I will take my mask with me and my pulse oximeter and I oh. will let you know how it reads. Do a little experiment. Ooh, right. I'll do a little experiment, mask on, mask off. Are you going to be by yourself or going to have somebody with you? Oh no, I'm, I'm going to have someone with me. Okay. Well, they, can they take video of you doing this? I'll take video of myself. Okay, cool. Nice. Her lips turning blue. <laughs> and then the airplane going Eyes outside rolling down. back. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Well, sadly, ladies and gentlemen, we lost Dr. Steph last week when she went out flying. <laughs> but we do have video. <laughs> it was completely just due to hypoxemia. No other reason. Um, no, I, I think it's all going to be, be just fine. And actually, I'll be surprised if it actually reads uh, anything lower than 97 or 96 percent we might point out that dr steph is the fittest person in the entire apg world yeah true come on rick is a and i did second. live at altitude for a number of years <laughs> even though i do not currently live at altitude now uh, i was wondering what kind of residual effect i spent has. most of my life at altitude in a pressurized <laughs> airplane <laughs> well yeah six thousand feet okay yeah. that counts you know what I'm going to do? We're getting close to the end of our show. And Ray! <laughs> Yay, excited about it. that. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, but, so we, we're not going to get to all of the feedback, but I thought we could quickly just talk about the 117 from Carl. Sure. Um, I'm not going to play the video, but we're going to talk about it. This is primarily for Dr. Steph, he says. Uh, North Carolina is not only first in flight, but also first in having a female parachutist or parachutist. <laughs> this link is <laughs> this link is to an old video interview with Tiny Broadwick, who um, ironically was one of the heaviest women ever to be in an air. No, that's not true at all. Uh, Tiny Broderick, who was the first woman to jump with a parachute. She was from North Carolina and made her first jump from a balloon in 1908. And yeah, I did. I didn't look at the video, so I did. It was hilarious. Oh, okay. Tell us about <laughs> absolutely. It. 
such a condescending, uh, and they I must have picked the biggest reporter they could find to stand beside this tiny, besides tiny. lady. She was five feet tall and 85 pounds. Wow. Yeah. Um, she and the really reporter was. has to be about seven feet tall. I mean. um, interesting lady, though. So she was, uh, I think she was from Oxford, North Carolina, which is north of Raleigh-Durham area, like almost up near the Virginia border. Um, Henderson, I think, is the other town up there. Um, but she, she got married like really young, like 12 years old or something like that. And then she, um, basically like ran away with these folks who were doing these, uh, parachuting acts out of hot air balloons. Um, so she traveled around with them. Um, and some of the, there's some other photos that I've just looked up on, uh, on the internet Their their gear for parachuting was quite interesting at the time. She was basically wearing this like, uh, life preserver design harness, with the parachute attached to it, and they'd often just kind of sit on the strut of the the air, uh, the airplane and have the parachute in hand, and then just you know jump back and let go, and it would open. So oh, I think she was also the um, inventor of the static line, or the oh no, I'm sorry, the ripcord for hmm. a parachute. Yeah, wow. very cool. So, first in flight and first in dive. Parachuting. Uh, parachuting. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you, Carl. Kleber for uh, sending us in that information. And we'll have a link to the YouTube video where you can learn all about Tiny Broadwick, Broadwick yourself. And with that, let's uh, wrap up the show. Um, thank you for watching, downloading, reviewing, all that stuff. Um, you can find out the, the myriad ways of watching our show and uh, consuming it by heading over to AirlinePilotGuy.com which is our show's website and there you can find all kinds of information about the crew, the community, got the community calendar, we have a library, uh, the APG library, uh, our librarian Tiffany. Uh, we have a special standalone page for the Plain Tales where, where you can learn a lot more about each week's installment of the amazing Plain Tales. And we have uh, merchandise and information about how you can join the financial backers of the show, uh, the Coffee Fund Cadre, uh, Coffee Fund information there, and so much more. Hey, we're on social media too, so don't you fret. We are. We're on Twitter. You can head over to twitter.com and we're at APG Crew. You can find all of our individual Twitter information pinned to the top of that page. And that's probably the best place to find out about when we will be recording live shows. Uh, if you prefer Facebook, it's facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. And if you're on the Instagram, it's uh, at, Air no, at APG Crew. Mixing up my social medias there. All right. But see you there. And uh, we're also on Slack. Oh, boy. Wow. Um, I guess the uh, need to turn the water game pressure's up a little bit. On that. Yeah, got the power shower on. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, he's using the, the the elephant shower head this time. Oh wait a minute, uh, that was the wrong one. <laughs> oh well, use your imagination about something very clever he just said, and uh, we're going to bring him over here, and he's going to tell us all about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, 
Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at AirlinePilotGuy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. Oh, thank you, Hillel. Uh, thank you for, for not embarrassing us on, on this show. Close the door. Ah, oh yeah, Delta P. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that was wrong. You did end up embarrassing us. And uh, let's see. Also, a big round of applause for our producer director Liz in the hey. control room in Toronto, Ontario. Thank you very much for. Everything you do, Liz, and we really mean it. It wouldn't be the same without you. And until next time, wishing you all clear skies and limited visibility and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. See you next time. Bye, everybody. Take care of yourself and your families. a good good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, I got